A star-spanning saga of ancient magic and deep science, vividly told by a modern master, says Dave Gibbons. Kelly Sue DeConnick states, the kind of epic you crave, both noun and adjective. And that doesn't even quite capture Liam Sharp's astonishing scope and vision. There's magic in these pages. Matt Fraction calls it jaw-dropping and epic and massive. He also says this is a gorgeous and incredible and massive swing for the stars that declares his ambitions have taken him to some exciting and undiscovered territories. Bravo, congrats, cheers, and exhale. This is glorious. What are they all talking about? Liam Sharp's upcoming six-issue series, Starhenge, from Image Comics. Liam himself says of the series, I wanted to do my own Image comic for 30 years. I wanted to do a Merlin comic for even longer than that. This is a culmination of so many dreams and ambitions of mine finally being realized, and that makes it the most exciting and personal comic project I've ever done. I can't wait to see it on the shelves. It's also been described as a mashup of the Green Knight and Terminator with all the Arthurian legends, time travel, and killer robots that entails, plus Merlin, magic, and mayhem. The first issue debuts in comic shops on July 6th, with final order cut off on June 13th. So now's the time to tell your retailers to order you a copy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. We're talking about the DC books for the week of June 28th, 2022. I can't believe year's almost half over. We're less than a month away from San Diego Comic-Con. Uh, everything is starting to snowball. <laughs> I have two, two event, first two events that I need to go to for press. They're both on Thursday night. Like I'm like, really? The very first two things are at the same time on Thursday night? I mean, first world problems, but it's it's always it's, – yeah, it's always a struggle. So Yeah, well, speaking anyway, of, D, speaking of uh, San Diego Comic-Con, I heard a nasty rumor that DC doesn't have a presence there. Is that true? I have not heard that. No? Okay. Well, I hope it's just a rumor then because I, uh, I, 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 I figure it had to be untrue, but <clears> – I mean – Keep in mind that even the last year before the pandemic, 2019, that Warner Brothers made the incredibly stupid decision to no longer have a DC Comics booth. The DC Comics and Warner Brothers booth were combined in this big giant monstrosity back in the corner where the Warner Brothers booth always is. Now, I always avoided the Warner Brothers booth like the play because it's back in the corner um, there's always, you know, like let's say there's a signing for the Arrow cast, whatever it it's crowded, tons of people, tons of security. Move along, move along. You can't even walk, you know, mm-hmm. you avoid it. And the DC booth was a great gathering place because it was kind of right in the middle, like front and center. And you'd walk into the, you know, main doors and it was right there. And everybody, it, it had a really thick carpet. So you'd get a chance to give your feet a rest and just, you'd see creators there just hanging out all the time. And it was, it was so it, great. And then the last year, San Diego Comic-Con, they didn't have the regular booth. They combined it. So I don't know if that's what people are talking about. 
But as far as I know, they're going to be there. But again, not in the way they were. And it's all about, I'm sure, saving money. You well, know, actually, I, I just read here, uh, Warner Brothers Discovery takes flight at Comic-Con 2022 as the combined divisions of the company are joining forces to mark the first in-person presence in three years at the world's premier Comic-Con and its popular convention. So I'm definitely wrong. It looks like it's going to be... Uh, well, I don't know. Yeah. That's a great... That's a great point because, okay, okay, again, it used to be like, so let's back up to 2018. You had a DC Comics booth. I would say it was the hub of the, between that and Marvel, Marvel was like across the aisle and down a little ways, but those were the two really big comic book booths. And then, you know, and all the comic publishers are in the same area. And then as you moved, you know, further, as you're looking at the convention center, as you move further to the left, that's when you had all the, the, um, the TV networks, right? So Discovery had a booth there. And then you keep moving further to the left, and then you have all the movie studios. So Warner Brothers had a booth. This is 2018. Warner Brothers has a booth. Discovery has a giant booth. DC has a giant booth. Move to 2019. Warner Brothers, DC combined their booth, right? But now, I mean, in a a perfect world, in, in, in the world that I rule, combine the Warner Brothers and Discovery booth, why pay two when they're combined, right? Why pay for two? networks combine them and bring the dc comics booth back that's what i would do but for all yeah. i know they're gonna have any uh, you know and even i don't know how they could really get an even larger booth and the, the warner brothers booth warner brothers combined dc comics booth was the biggest booth there and the and another reason it was terrible is so the the old dc comics booth everything was on the outside and then the carpet and the stage were in the middle so you could walk in you could see everything when they combined it the Warner Brothers booth, they had all uh, Warner Brothers DC Comics. They have all these little signing areas, yeah. but you can't stand on one area and see through. Everything's segmented. You got to walk out into the aisle and come back in. Walk. It's. It was just a really poor setup in my mind, um, but it allowed for easier crowd control, I imagine, um, and line control. So I, I, yeah, I have no idea what they're going to do. Is are Warner Brothers DC going to have a booth? Is it going to be Warner Brothers Discovery and DC Comics all in one booth? I have no idea. I guess we'll see. Yeah, no. Hope for the I best. I, I want DC to have a strong presence there. You know, I think it. Uh, I think it deserves it. I think uh, DC, as far as I'm concerned, they they should only be. I think they only have one way to go, and that's up. But uh, you know, fingers well, here's crossed. Here's the other. Here's the other thing, right? Like all the big panels, all the big panels at San Diego Comic Con for DC were all hosted by Dan Didio, all of them. So you have no Dan Didio. I. That's not Marie Javins from every time I've met her. That's just not her shtick, you know. So Jim Lee's not going to do it. So who? Who? Well, uh, they, they're advertising DC activities include a must-see panel with Jim Lee and friends, deep deep dives into Dark Crisis and comics set in Gotham City and across the DC multiverse, and a conversation between Tom Taylor and Tom King, and then Warner Brothers games and you know CW stuff and a bunch of DC animation. So it. Uh, I mean, it's all on the major sites here. So, so hopefully we'll get some, uh, we'll get some decent, uh, good press. Typically, typically at a San Diego Comic-Con, you got about eight or nine DC Comics panels and they all focus on, you know, different, like you, you, you have a Justice League panel, you got a Batman panel, you got a Superman panel, you got a panel for whatever events going on. In this case, we're talking Dark Crisis. You'd probably have a Flashpoint Beyond panel if you could, if Jeff Johns is there. Uh, and then you have a Meet the Publishers panel with Jim and Dan. Again, this was before Dan left, obviously. Uh, and then you'd have the Jim Lee spotlight panel where he would just draw. 
So there are any number. And then you'd usually have like a DC toys panel and a DC animated panel. So, I mean, you have a lot of panels and I'm sure that they're still going to have a lot of panels, but again, who's hosting them? That's my, that's my, is it just going to be random publicity people? Like they're busy doing, I, I don't know. It's going to be interesting. It's really going to be interesting to see what goes down this year and who's hosting these panels because it, it surprisingly, or maybe unsurprisingly, it makes a big difference. Dan always made those panels a lot of fun. Uh, and gave away a lot of cool stuff. So anyway, let's dive in. I think it was a pretty solid week. Uh, that being said, my book of the week was a no brainer. I thought it stood out and I really enjoyed it. Had me laughing out loud. Um, but one thing, and I'm not going to point out anything in particular, any books in particular, but I will say, cause again, I don't want to, uh, you know, call anybody out. I thought it was a really weak, um, covers for, for cover of var- variant covers. I thought it was, there's just a lot of covers I didn't care for. I was like, really? That's the variant cover. Like I, I, that's not a very good looking cover. I, I just thought typically there's like, I have a hard time, which cover am I going to get? Maybe I'll end up getting both. Although I've been trying to stay away from getting multiple covers because I just have too many books, especially I'm sorting them all right now and it's taking forever. Um, but yeah, man, I thought the covers this week, very few standouts. So anyway, how, what, how'd you feel about the week overall? Uh, I'm, I'm batting about 50-50. I'm, I thought the majority I w- were very meh. There's only about maybe three or four that I thought were uh, were ones that were maybe worthy of note, in, in my opinion. But uh, we'll get into it, and I'm sure we'll have some differences of opinion. We might even agree on something, God forbid. Yeah, yeah, maybe we will. Uh, all right, well, let's go ahead and kick it off with uh, Deathstroke Incorporated number 10, which is a little bit of a misnomer. Right, we it's not really Deathstroke Incorporated anymore. We talked about why when we first started reviewing it, when the when the new series of Deathstroke started, written by Joshua Williamson, we're like, why is this called Deathstroke Incorporated? It didn't make any sense. It was Deathstroke and Black Canary, and then eventually he, uh, you know, recruited the Secret Society of Supervillains, took it over. Then it kind of made sense, but that was only for a very short time. Then we went Shadow War. And now we basically have Deathstroke year one. So I'm all for Deathstroke year one. It's just that the Deathstroke Incorporated title doesn't, I mean, this is just focusing on Deathstroke, which again, I'm very happy to have it a year one version of, of the Deathstroke story. So it's written by Ed Brisson. Maybe that's part of the reason I'm so excited. I love Ed's work. Art is by Dexter Soy. Colors are by Veronica Gandini. Letters by Steve Wands. Uh, the main cover here by Mikhail Yanin. I thought it was pretty fantastic. And th- this one actually had a couple of decent variant covers. Uh, the one he's kind of just sitting in a rocking chair, cleaning a, an old rifle. That was kind of fun. But the other cover, which is sort of like every weapon you could ever imagine <laughs> in the DC universe, uh, a lot of Easter eggs on it. It's by an artist called Ivan Dow. I think it's how you pronounce the name. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was, uh, it's just a fun there's, yeah. I mean, you could see Dr. Fate's helmet. You could see Peacemaker's yeah. helmet. There's a Joker popping out of a jack-in-the-box. My favorite is Medusa's uh, head. Medusa's head there with the yeah, snakes. Yeah, <laughs> Medusa's head is there. Wonder Woman's armor. You got Batarangs. You got Flamethrowers. I mean, it's just it's just a heck of a heck of a fun cover. But inside, I, I – and what's funny is I – so I knew this was year one. I mean, because you look at the, the main Mikhail Yanin cover, it says right there, year one starts here. But I wasn't exactly sure what to think. And so based on how it started with uh, Slade basically waking up from a coma and then kind of lashing out, and I was thinking, okay, 
in the last issue, we had him coming up out of the Lazarus pits after the Shadow War and Talia had killed him. And then his um, his followers or members of the Secret Society of uh, Supervillains put him into Lazarus pit. We know the Lazarus pits, according to um, what's her name? Mother, Mother Soul. Yeah. Um, that the Lazarus pits are contaminated or whatever. So I was like, okay, he's, we saw him come out of the Lazarus pits. Now he's lashing out at these medical people who were apparently, you know, looking over him, making sure he's okay. And it took me a minute. I'm like, well, wait a second. Hold on. This, this is in the past. This is not, uh, this is not him just coming out of the Lazarus pits because he has both his eyes. Uh, and so, you know, very quickly as you read it, you realize, no, this is when he first went through the experimental treatment by the uh, United States government, ACTH, which was supposed to basically create a super soldier. And instead it, it does the opposite. His, he's wasting away. He's very weak. He can barely walk. Eventually he recovers. And then at some point, eventually he's, he starts to get the powers that we know uh, Deathstroke to have in terms of heightened strength and heightened senses and reflexes and uh, heals from wounds very, uh, very easily, very quickly. So I thought it was a great start. Um, and the other thing that I, I really enjoyed about it that Ed Brisson is leaning into something that's been a part of Deathstroke from the very beginning, from when uh, Marv Wolfman and George Perez created him. And that's this idea of dysfunction as a father, right? It's, it's inherent to the character. Part of what, you know, what made him a great villain for the teen Titans is that, you know, he saw them all as surrogate children, but again, he's not a good father. So he never knew how to, to, um, to deal with them correctly. Obviously we know the things with Tara, which that story would never get approved today. <laughs> you know, here this, you know, 30 year old guy, I think he was at the time, you know, having sexual relations with a minor that, that wouldn't fly, but be that as it may, this is a very good story. And surprisingly, I mean, I've always liked Deathstroke as a character. I, I think he's just a fun character and he's always been, as opposed to DC taking somebody who's a villain like Black Manta or Poison Ivy or Harley Quinn and, trying to turn him into a hero or an anti-hero, Deathstroke's always been in the gray area. And that's what I've loved about him. You know, he's a mercenary, right? Um, so I've always liked him. But lately, what's become even more interesting to me about him is this idea that you could always judge the things that he did harshly. Like, yeah, maybe he's not all bad. Maybe he's just after a buck and, you, you know, that's what mercenaries are but you could judge certain things he, he did as wrong and not really understand where he's coming from. Like, Hey, he's a, he's a bad guy. Like you're taking money from this foreign government to go assassinate somebody that's, you know, morally objectionable, but you can't really understand it. You know, like you can't really defend it. What I love what Ed Brisson is doing here. He leans into this idea that, you know, Slade never should have been a father and, you know, the struggles that he went through with the, the program, the ACTH and whatever. And you, you get this very, very relatable, at least it was to me, this very relatable perspective on why Slade Wilson's making the choices that he makes. Almost to the point of he doesn't have a choice, you know, like he feels trapped. I mean, he talks about, you know, I said when he woke up, he lashed out and they, they had to strap him down to this table. His body's wasting away. And they had him strapped down and he felt trapped. It's the worst thing for this guy who, you know, lived his life as a very uh, superior physical specimen, even before the treatments, right? Later on, when he finally gets out of the hospital and he's slowly starting to recover, 
and he talks about having to take a crappy job to pay the bills and try to be a father. And he likens that, that, you know, family life and trying to spend time with his son and be a good father and husband. He likens that to being strapped down on that table and still being trapped. I thought that was a very good way to make Slade relatable and, and for Ed Brisson to like present an, uh, an analogy or a comparison that makes it very easy to understand where Slade's coming from and why he makes the choices he, he made. Like that, the, that comparison might be the best summation of who Slade Wilson is as, uh, as a character that I've, that I've ever read. Like this guy never should have been married and definitely never should have had kids. He's just, he's one of those people that's not built for it. And it's come to kind of define him. Um, and it's an interesting aspect of the character. I don't think it's necessarily been overplayed. Um, although maybe we're kind of getting up to that line because we did see with Christopher Priest, oh, Damien might be Slade's son. And then we did have a, a sort of a Damien son for uh, Deathstroke with Respawn. So as long as they don't lean into it every time, I mean, still give us Deathstroke, still give us action, still give us Slade being a dick. And uh, and I should be, I'll be happy with it. So, thought the art was was fine from Dexter Soy. Not his best work, but really really solid. Um, I think his 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 art shines best when he's drawing action. So it may have been a little challenge for him. This is a lot, in a lot of ways a talking heads issue, um, but I'm looking forward to more action to come with it. So, uh, what were your thoughts, Rocky? Well, I'm going to be a little bit more critical, only because as a longtime Deathstroke uh, reader and fan. Uh, this brought nothing new to the table for me. I, I never asked for a – now, uh, I, I shouldn't sound so harsh. I didn't ask for a year one story. I think this was a jarring shift. I was really – we're finally at an exciting point with Deathstroke coming into Dark Crisis. And then we're – now we're getting year one story. I mean, I don't need a year one story. What, I mean, for a long time, as a longtime DC fan, is there anybody out there that doesn't know Deathstroke's origin? I mean – I, I thought we got this year one story. I thought we got three or four of them at this by this time, to be honest with you. But um, having said that, I will uh, I'll, uh, I'll give you some props in the manner in which you describe this story because you actually, in your description of it, uh, which was I think very insightful, you made me like this story better than I did when I initially read it. Uh, you made you made a couple of good points there because I was I was kind of a little bit. I never got over my uh, being a little bit pissed off that this is a year one story uh, because I, I wanted it out of Dark Crisis. And that's an unfair criticism, I admit. It's just my bias. But uh, I kind of like, uh, you know, I, I know that I know that Deathstrokes was a jerk, that he was a terrible father. We, we, we kind of know that. So honestly, none of this brings anything new to the table to me. In fact, uh, you know, it was always to the degree that there was always some mystery in in, Dest in Slade Wilson's past, where I always sort of imagine how much of a real jerk he was. I imagine him. I, I frankly imagine him being a much bigger jerk than he comes than he's written here. The biggest thing he does here that's a jerk is that he 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 takes his son Grant out hunting, and he and he teaches his son Grant how to snap a how to how to hang and snap a rabbit's neck. You know, and I, I kind of chuckled at that, and I would have thought that if, if if Slade Wilson's your father, that would be the least traumatic thing you'd experience as a child. But uh, maybe I just have this thing in my head where I I think Slade Wilson is this was the greatest. This guy is destined to become the greatest hitman ever, and he loves war. He loves hurting people. And uh, he loves getting into the, the thick of things. And I thought this played it pretty safe. 
I, I really did. I thought this was really playing it safe. I thought it was a little tropey even. I thought it was very predictable only because I kind of always knew that he was part of a government program and that he, I, at some point, I'm sure he's betrayed and he branches off. Uh, but I will give Ibris in this. Now that we're getting the story, oh, okay. I have got nothing really surprises me yet, but I will say that um, maybe some potential surprises. He's the only soldier to survive the experimentation that his body undergoes. He's the only soldier to have survived the treatment. And he's then basically asked to kill the the doctor who leads the program because the doctor wants to expose the program. And Slade Wilson is basically asked by the government, look, we want you to kill the doctor who basically whose experiments made you the soldier you are. But because we want to keep you secret, you're that important, Slade. So what's really good here to build upon what you're saying is that the government agent is is sort of using that using Slade's ego against them like i mean like you're the best there is you know w- will you help us slade finally doesn't feel useless anymore the government wants him he's the best he's the only one that survived the treatment and he's been he's been secretly going outside at night beating the hell out of punks and, and street punks at night building up his strength and he he loves a he loves the adrenaline it's it's that hyper adrenalism that that helped make him deathstroke and it's feeding his ego it's feeding his pride and of course pride always cometh before the fall and so in that respect it this it this is a you can as you said this is a good foundation for for new readers of deathstroke this is excellent it, it is you you're, you're going to get all the stuff you need all in one story and so full props to Ed Brisson. Uh, because this does have this does this does does have it all. I don't think there's anything surprising here to longtime readers, in, in my opinion. But this is very good if you if you just want to get your feet wet. But I would like to see a little bit more darkness here, uh, in terms of his character, because uh, he gets Deathstroke's been in one of those characters. He's gotten really dark in the past, and I, I'd like to see a little bit more darkness before we start seeing signs of redemption. This is after year year one, so uh, we'll have to see where it goes. Yeah, I would say, I mean, it is the first issue and, you know, for, for all accounts, a lot of Slade's darkness, if you will, comes from the treatment in terms of, yeah, he always, he, I don't know that he loved war. I mean, I, I've always thought of him as a very patriotic and yeah, made to be a soldier, but not, not necessarily living in that moral, you know, that gray area, that, that morally ambiguous area where he eventually gets to. It's the treatment itself that makes him crave the action and, you know, the high of the adrenaline and, and the high of, of fighting that sort of pushes him even further toward where he may or may not have ended otherwise. So, and in terms of him being a bad father, I mean, I think the Christopher Priest run kind of established that it wasn't even so much that when he was there, he did bad things. It was mostly his biggest, um, his biggest fault as a parent is he just wasn't there. He was never there. And I mean, and that and that's to me even worse than taking your kid out and doing questionable things like taking a five-year-old hunting. Uh, you know, that's questionable enough, but <laughs> even worse when you're not, you're just not there at all. And your kid's left to wonder, well, where is he? Why, why am I not worth, like, does he not care enough to be around like that? I mean, that's really honestly the worst, the worst thing you could do as far as uh, wanting it to tar- tie into dark crisis. I, I get your point, but I mean, we've had one issue of Dark Crisis so far. Nothing has happened. So honestly, it's probably too early to, I mean, again, we don't know what's going to happen in Dark Crisis, but Slade Wilson and the Secret Society of Supervillains appear to have a very significant role 
it's probably too early for them to to have you know a dark crisis story. So that may be why they hey let's do two three issues of year one. Remember, dark crisis goes till the end of the year. We got six yeah. months of dark crisis. So it probably was more an editorial thing why it. I'm sure it was. It's actually an indirect compliment to DC because I'm actually really enjoying Dark Crisis, and and it it is a compliment to say that I I I've I've really been enjoying Deathstroke's sort of transition to greater darkness, uh, being poisoned, his mind poisoned or corrupted by the Lazarus Pit. I really like that. I just want more of it. So that's why I'm a little frustrated here. But it's it doesn't detract from Ed Brisson's story here. This is a really great jumping on point to Deathstroke. Let me ask you this: Have you gone ahead? weeks ahead and read the dark crisis stuff that that we got press previews for already <laughs> i uh yes, that's a I, yes. I have i that's i, I yes. there you go yeah you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah, it's, yeah uh, i try not to do that i try not to i try to only you know read about a week ahead uh in preparation for these because yeah then what happens is then you end up waiting waiting because you know sometimes we get stuff waiting and the reason we got basically a lot of the books from July already is because of San Diego Comic-Con. Yeah. Their, um, <laughs> their uh, marketing team and their, their press team is, is going to be busy with San Diego for probably the whole month of July. So typically in July, we get all the press previews for like the whole month, almost at once. So that's why we have some, you know, we can read like three weeks ahead right now. So yeah. Uh, anyway, let's move on. Uh, Harley Quinn, number 16, the verdict part four seems to be the next to last. So I think we have one more, uh, I think for the verdict it's written by Stephanie Phillips. Art is by Riley Rosmo colors by Yvonne Placencia letters by and world design. Um, yeah, I thought the covers were very meh, but, uh, anyway, what are your thoughts on the book? Um, sorry, I'm just going to bring it up here. Yeah, this is, uh, um, this is uh yeah these are the covers you mentioned i i think they're kind of meh uh myself but in any event this is uh the verdict part part 4 uh one of uh, harley's sidekicks kevin uh his his girlfriend samantha is revealed to, of course she's revealed to be the verdict and this is essentially this issue uh Steph, writer stephanie phillips explains the verdict's origin story this is sam's uh origin story and ultimately it's revealed that 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 this uh, Sam explains to uh, Kevin, her her boyfriend, that uh, you know, look, Kevin, I know that Harley is your best friend and all, uh, but you know, I'm actually the verdict, and I actually, and she explains her story, and and verdict uh, used to be a cop by the name of uh, uh, Samantha, and she had she had a partner who was killed and they were killed uh, because of something ultimately that Harley did her and her partner were told uh, were the victim of, uh, of well, they were, they were told to deliver Harley to Arkham Asylum. And uh, in the, in the delivery, uh, they, they put Harley in the back of a, of a, of a uh, back of a jail truck or whatever. And uh, hauled her off. And then the Joker, intercepted the vehicle there there was corrupt cops in the vehicle they ended up uh you know uh intentionally letting harley go but harley ended up uh knocking out the officers and uh and harley this is back when harley was really bad and one and the joker's partner harley ended up uh, indirectly she, there was a gun it went off it shot through the it shot through the uh 
shot through the truck and ended up killing her partner. And so Sam basically wants revenge. And basically what, what I found interesting about this issue is that it's sort of a reminder to me is, uh, you know, and here it is juxtaposed in between all this, this humor infused in this story by Stephanie Phillips is the very harsh reminder that Harley used to be a killer. And even though it's suggested that Harley Quinn, an earlier version of her escaped incarceration and somebody was killed and that technically maybe it was an accident. The fact is Harley didn't care if she killed when she was younger. This is a reminder that Harley Quinn is a killer. And it actually made me feel sorry for Samantha. Samantha is a former detective. She wants revenge. Now, unfortunately, Samantha becomes the verdict and she becomes a killer in her own right. So that's wrong, of course. But she's not necessarily any more wrong than Harley. I guess Harley was a Harley was a, was a murderer because she was mentally ill. She still is kind of mentally ill, kind of, isn't she, Harley? I guess which, depending on which iteration you want to accept. And then the verdict here is in her own right, uh, you know, the victim of corrupt cops of Gotham cops. Another example of the Gotham PD, the corruption of the Gotham Police Department, corrupting a detective. And, you know, she loses her partner. And this Samantha goes on to ultimately fall in love and befriend Kevin. And, and she she's trying to... Uh, the verdict here, Sam genuinely believes that when she explains her situation to Kevin, that Kevin will understand. You'll understand why Harley, why, why Harley is a menace, why Harley, you know, needs to be killed, why, you know, that you'll understand me better. And it, it basically ends with Harley not realizing, Harley goes to visit her best friend, Kevin, and she doesn't realize that Sam is actually in Kevin's uh Kevin's apartment and has just finished explaining to Kevin her origin and her motivations of why she wants to hurt Harley. And that's how the issue ends. And so I actually enjoyed this issue a little bit more than previous issues because I felt some, we finally got something of substance a little bit where we got to the point here. We're, we're four, we're in chapter four here of the verdict. It's, we finally get the verdict's origin and maybe it's, maybe it's a little tropey, but I kind of like the fact that it, it, she's, uh, at least for me, I don't know if this was the intention of, of Stephanie Phillips, the writer, if this was her intention, but I personally, I, do, I actually do have some sympathy for the verdict here. I mean, she's a killer, but you know what? I mean, there was a time when people forget that Harley Quinn has had a very, very checkered past and she's had so many different iterations. She's been psychotic. She's been a murderer. She's been a killer without remorse. And, but she's also been fun, loving the bisexual, lovey, jovial, lesbian slash whatever you like. She's so many different things to different people. But this is a reminder to people that there are many different iterations of Harley. And this is an example of the past coming back to haunt Harley. And for very, very good reason. I think Harley Quinn has earned the revenge that more than one person wants to inflict upon her. So uh, the art by Raleigh Rosmo is, as always, uh, I think it's an acquired taste. But I've been enjoying it. I've gotten accustomed to it. Uh, you know, if, if you're on board with this with this with the art now you're going to remain on board uh overall i i thought this was better than in the in the, the last few issues i enjoy this i'm actually curious to see how it resolves i actually do have some sympathy for the characters there's a decent amount of character work here and i'm going to say something that maybe i haven't made made clear before that i do think that stephanie phillips iteration she's very good at defending riley rosmo and we certainly respect him as as an artist even though he's maybe a little bit stylistic for some I do think that it's unfortunate. I do think some of uh, Stephanie Phillips, the story might have perhaps have been uh, 
better received had it been under uh, a different artist. And I can't help but wonder, wonder if the fact that we're, we're going into the death of Harley Quinn and it's, she's going to be shipped uh, weekly and it's Riley Rosmo is not the artist. And I can't help but wonder if that's by editorial design or if, if it was for other reasons. But uh, in any event, I'm actually kind of glad because, you know, uh, Stephanie Phillips is continuing to write Harley, but she's going to be getting a different regular artist at least for the next, uh, I think, six or seven, six or eight weeks of the Death of Harley Quinn series. So, or the, the storyline. So we'll see where it goes. But um, yeah, what do you think? Yeah, it's a good point that you make. I think Riley's art definitely suits kind of a more fun-loving story, not something that's so serious as this. It, it's so interesting, right? Like. Let's take a step back here and talk about why Harley is, is no longer a villain, why she's no longer a Joker sidekick. And I'm not talking about in in story or in DC continuity. Uh, I'm talking about from a business perspective for Warner Brothers. The reason that DC is that DC has made Harley more of a, an anti-hero or even an outright hero is because she's very important to their business. She makes Warner Brothers a hell of a lot of money, right? Uh, she was always a popular character, but it was really when um, DC basically said, Dan Didio, actually, to, to give credit where credit's due, said to uh, Jimmy Palmiotti, Amanda Connor, yeah, do whatever you want. Harley's kind of this malleable character um, and her popularity is going to be what it is. Uh, and they let J Jimmy and Amanda tell the story they wanted to tell. And, you know, as popular as Harley was, her popularity skyrocketed. And it, it also so happened to coincide with Harley's appearance in a few other um, video game franchises where she was very popular, the Arkham series um, and also the Injustice series. So it, it was kind of like um, the planets aligned and Harley became basically the fourth pillar of the DCU, right? You got Superman, you got Batman, you got Wonder Woman, now you got Harley. And I would argue, and I would be very surprised if I'm incorrect here, that Harley probably makes them more money than Wonder Woman and maybe yeah. even more than Superman. That that one, you know, uh, Superman's maybe not as popular here in the United States, but yeah. he's pretty popular. Well, I suspect uh, she's yeah. she probably sells more pajamas than Wonder Woman and Superman combined. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, she, yeah, the bottom line is other than Batman, she's making as much as anybody else, uh, any other character. So that's really what we're talking about here. Why, why would you want to make her, you know, uh, a hero. Cause I talk about it all the time. You got enough heroes. Let me leave the villains, villains, let them be bad guys. Uh, and, and she's definitely, you know, they've, they've, she's not even an anti-hero anymore. They, they have her out and out as a hero. Does she have flaws? Yes. Does that make her relatable? Yes. Um, so I agree with you. It's great to be reminded, you know, as we were going through the story, I'm like, yeah, remember this, everybody, Harley Quinn was not a good person. And you can point to her mental illness or, the sway of the Joker, whatever you want to point to about why she did what she did. And now, you know, clearly she's trying to make up for it. And you can even say, okay, well, technically she didn't shoot the guard. Um, it was one of the other cops that she, that were corrupt, that were letting her loose. But I mean, at the end of the day, she's, if they're not transporting her, you know, it's, it's at the very worst, it's involuntary manslaughter. If not, you know, first degree murder, she didn't pull the trigger or anything and it wasn't premeditated. Um, but yeah, it's, it's problematic. So it's, you definitely have sympathy for the verdict, you know, for, for Kevin's girlfriend, Sam, she actually wasn't a detective though. She was, uh, just a patrolman and a very, um, junior one at that, but yeah, she, you know, she's in the hospital recovering 
her partner was killed. As Rocky said, she overhears, you know, the other veteran cops, as well as the captain of her precinct. They're all on the take. They all took money from the Joker and uh, she takes matters into her own hands. But again, you, you really sympathize with her. So I, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. I haven't read ahead or anything, um, but I applaud Stephanie Phillips for basically confronting this sort of on the nose problem that we have here with Harley Quinn. Like, doesn't Harley, I mean, does she deserve to be, I mean, I won't say killed, but doesn't she deserve to be punished and brought to justice? Like, has she actually paid the price? I mean, again, mental illness, she wasn't in control of her actions. Like, I, I get that thing, but man, it's it's got to be tough to see your partner killed in front of you and feel like Harley is, uh, yeah. is responsible. Now, don't get me wrong, I disagree with, like uh, Rocky said, it's not okay that Sam goes, okay, well, you know, eye for an eye. You know, that's not the civilized way to, to do things. But uh, I do appreciate what Stephanie Phillips is doing here. And I, I, I do agree with Rocky about uh, Rosmo style. It, 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 it suits the zany Harley, the funny Harley, the, oh, let's laugh and tell jokes Harley, over-the-top villains or whatnot. But this is more of a serious story taking on kind of a serious aspect of the character. So I do agree that a different art style might might suit the story better. Obviously, we can't say for sure unless it was done again in different art style. Uh, I know Rosmo's off the book. Uh, like you say, he's, you know, it's not just that he's leaving for Death of Harley. I think he moved on to another project. So be curious to see who, who they're going to bring in. No idea if it was because. It's Robin. He's going to be writing. He's going to be drawing uh, Tim Drake Robin series. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Because we, yeah, we were texting yeah. about that. Yeah, that's right. Wondering if that's the right style for that. So anyway. Uh, I did enjoy it. I am curious. I agree with you. Like I've been enjoying the Harley Quinn uh, series from the start, but this has been my favorite issue so far. Uh, all right, let's move on. Uh, Batman Fortress number two, written by Gary Whitta, art by Derek Robertson, colors by Diego Rodriguez, lettered by Simon Boland. Uh, so what's interesting about this one, the main cover, talking about you know covers maybe not being as great. The main cover has Batman flying what looks to be like an F-18, like all the rest of the planes. Uh, and in the story, the Justice League alongside air forces from all over the world, very reminiscent of like an Independence Day scene, uh, the movie, um, they're all flying jets. But in the book, in the comic, Batman is flying his Batwing. Um, but it, on the cover, I didn't realize that that was a Batwing he's flying. I thought he was flying a jet like everybody else, which I kind of thought was interesting. But then when I look at it closer, I'm like, yeah, okay, he is flying the Batwing um, on the cover. Um, but I, I, this book was so fun. Um, brutal Batman. We don't know where Superman is. That was established last issue. Um, you know, there's this alien invasion. There's this alien ship. It's disrupted communications and power throughout the globe. The rest of the Justice League gets together. You have Wonder Woman, Aquaman, Cyborg, Martian Manhunter, which Martian Manhunter is nearly as powerful as Superman, but he doesn't come across as very powerful in this issue. Um, I guess, you know, for reasons, obviously for story reasons, you, you want it to basically be Batman against everybody. Flash is there, Hawkman, and Batman. So they take on, they team up with this Air Force. They take on this... Um, alien vessel and much like independence day it's shielded they send out drones these drones are moving at like 99 percent of the speed of light they accelerate very quickly slice through metal well that doesn't really bode well for cyborg who gets sliced apart and then even as he's laying there dying in the hospital after tells 
Batman. I wish I could be more help. I'm not half the man I used to be. Uh, I'll give <laughs> Gary. I'll give Gary Witta a ton of credit for balancing the humor with these high stakes. Like there's humor peppered throughout. Everything from Flash saying me asking Jessica Cruz to be friends on Instagram isn't creepy. Well, when she already blocked you, it is. Like there's just constant lines like that that are just they're just fun they're just fun and even in you know the heat of the moment in the battle uh you know it feels very authentic that these guys would be you know it's life or death and you got to keep it lighthearted sometimes and i I just that for me is what put this over the top made it my favorite book of the week was just the the writing from uh from gary witta and also the character moments, and I'll give uh, the uh, Derek Roberts and the artist a lot of credit for that. You know, there's one moment where Bruce, so Bruce, basically after this fight, Batman's left alone. Like um, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, and Martian Manhunter are all captured. Bruce assumes they're inside the vessel. Uh, uh, Flash is gravely injured and is stuck in the hospital recovering. Cyborg has been killed, like I mentioned. So Batman's sort of on his own to try to figure out like what's going on. Um, although he does take Cyborg's head with him back to the Batcave, very morbid <laughs> in a lot of ways. Uh, and as he opens the case that he's got the head in, he's like, sorry about this friend, but you know, you and I have work to do. Obviously um, he needs uh, the analysis, the data that Cyborg was able to, able to gather uh, about the ship before he was gravely injured. Um, and so obviously Batman's going to hook into his head and, and pull that uh, information. But anyway, he's there, he's by himself. He's got to figure this out on his own. And Alfred's like, well, maybe after a good night's sleep, right. Get some rest and come at it fresh in the morning. And Bruce just gives him that look. Right. And Alfred even goes, Oh, I, I know that look. Uh, <laughs> and that, that panel right there from Derek Robertson, I mean, that says it all there. No words are needed. <laughs> right. I mean, it's just, it is the quintessential Batman look. Uh, and he's looked, He's bruised. He's, you know, got the five o'clock shadow. He clearly has seen better days in terms of, uh, you know, how he's feeling physically, but he's not about to, to rest or stop even for a second. That's who Batman is. And there are several character moments like that that are really heightened by the uh, by the acting, the physical, either the emotion in the face or um, kind of the body language of these characters. And that's all Derek Robertson. He does a fantastic job. And then at the end, we get some of, um, we get a glimpse or a hint at what the ship is as it sends down a little landing pod. They go to the Kent farm. And just in case you weren't clear that it was the Kent farm in the last panel, they're walking by the mailbox out front that says Kent on it and they're looking for Superman. So uh, much like Batman himself is wondering where he is. um, And clearly they have beef with Superman, um, maybe more so than with Superman himself, Kryptonians in general. It sounds like the Kryptonians had done something to these aliens at some point, um, and now they're here for payback. So I thought it was fantastic. Didn't necessarily know what to think after the first issue. It, it moved so quickly, that first issue. Uh, I don't know that I, I necessarily even got a sense of the tone. It, it was very much a setup issue. But this this issue really kicks off the story in uh, in high gear, get a sense of the tone, get a sense of the stakes. And I, I like, I loved it. I loved it. And what else is great about it? Very easy for new readers. Like, do you know who Flash is? Do you know who Aquaman and Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman are? Cyborg? That's all you need. You don't need to know any storylines going on. You don't know anything about Dark Crisis 
or Infinite Frontier or Death Metal or any of that. Just pick this up and read it. It stands on its own. Gorgeous art, beautiful color work, wonderful dialogue. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is what a Justice League movie should be, a, a story like this. And Gary Whitta comes, I think he writes, if not for TV, at least for animation. So, man, I'd love to have him write a screenplay for a Justice League movie. This was fun, you know. Uh, balances the humor with action and stakes very, very well. So, yeah, it, this was a no-brainer, my favorite DC title. So, what do you think, Rocky? Uh, you know, when I think of Derek Robertson, I always think of the bo- his work on The Boys. And one thing about Derek Robertson, he's very good at drawing gore. He's very good at drawing gory scenes. And I, the, for, there's a part of me that thinks that he's holding back here because he, he can't show Cyborg being ripped apart or disemboweled. But he's pretty good at showing Cyborg just playing cut in half, you know, <laughs> and he's pretty good. Instead of ha- showing a lot of blood and guts, he'll show, I like the way that he used how the heroes like Aquaman and Wonder Woman and Flash sort of like being absorbed into this uh, floating balloon egg of the aliens, which is, you know, which is shooting out a message that says, you know, attempt no further interference, prompting Batman to wonder interference with what? What do these aliens want? What do these aliens think that we're interfering with? What's going on? And of course, knowing that Superman is off the playing field, where is Superman is missing, knowing that these aliens are likely viewing uh, all anything Kryptonian related as a threat. And they want to, they go to the uh, Kent family farm at the end. Clearly they're looking for anything Kryptonian because they view it as a threat. Superman's off the playing field. I know that uh, some future solicits talk about, you know, uh, the Fortress of Solitude. Uh, but I think, I think it's inevitable that you're going to end up fighting, going there. Uh, it's interesting depending on what continuity you go with, because uh, certainly in, uh, Actually, even in current continuity, <laughs> for what it is, uh, for what it's worth, you know, Kryptonians, before Krypton exploded, Kryptonians had a reputation, did not have a particularly good reputation in the by, in the rest, in the eyes of many of the other uh, planets in the universe. Kryptonians were considered by, by some to be sort of warmongers or conquerors. And so... In that respect, uh, you know, the fact that there's another alien race that still wants revenge on, on this Kryptonian and maybe see Superman as a threat. It might be a, you know, it's a, it's something that's been done before. But the point of this story, the fact that it involves Superman or a crypt, uh, aliens angry with Kryptonians, that's not what makes this story good. What makes this story good is that you see it from the perspective of, of, of uh, what is it? iteration of Batman, the way Derek Robertson draws Batman in particular. And you talked about some of those scenes where, I mean, this, the rapport that this Bruce Wayne and Alfred have here, I think, I think it's really good. And I also got to say that there's a couple of criticisms, uh, uh, reading some reviews of this series, uh, that were completely off the mark. And I I just want to call it out, call them out. One was some people apparently were fixated on on a, on two panels in issue one where Batman refused to it refused to get involved with uh, rioting in Gotham City, and so people interpreted that as him favoring Antifa and all this other nonsense. Uh, to those of you who didn't like issue one on that, um, well, you'll be happy to know that there's no rioting <laughs> in this issue. This is uh, just good old fashioned fun science fiction. Batman battling aliens, the Justice League battling aliens. Uh, and this is just playing a lot of fun. Uh, so any, uh, you know, this this is, uh, this is a really fun comic book. It's action-packed. It's cinematic in scope. It's got 
it it and it managed to it, it, you we managed to get actually gory scenes without blood and guts because Gary because Derek Robertson is so good at you know I mean there's a scene where where Wonder Woman Hawkman Martian Manhunter where they're absorbed and even though you could almost see maybe they're being burned to death but they're not they're being absorbed but it looks kind of horrific there's a horror element to this that is actually PG and in a very effective way so high props to Derek Robertson on, on this and as far as for the characterizations I, I see nothing out of the ordinary or nothing that makes me all all the voices the dialogue here I think uh, writer Gary Witter has captured the voices of the character uh, characters reasonably well I would say even very well uh, especially Batman's which I think is which is bang on and to the extent that it's a little different well so this is out of continuity I always gotta we, we always gotta be a little mindful here when when we have thirty Batman books a month. Sometimes if we if we get a story that's kind of obviously out of continuity, it's a tale from elsewhere out in the Omniverse. We gotta like maybe put our continuity aside a little bit to say that this Batman is out of character or he Batman wouldn't do this. How would you know that? There's a thousand different universes out there. So some of the criticisms I think are a little bit. Um, uh, Oddly short-sighted, but in any event, uh, that's my that's my rant, and uh, yeah, so I, I enjoyed this high, high regard. Definitely one of the best of the week for sure. Yeah, all I'll say about anybody interpreting two panels in a comic to mean Batman supports Antifa is an idiot. <laughs> They're just an idiot. No, but Gary Wood is not thinking. I'm going to put this in because I support it. No, nobody gives a shit about your Antifa beliefs. <laughs> One way or the other. I promise you. I promise you they're not considering it. And if you're reading that into it, you're a fucking moron. That's all I have to say. Like, I'm not going to pull any punches about that kind of stuff. Are there politics in comics? Yeah, there are. 100%. Always have been, always will be. But I promise you, Gary Witt is not. No, that's not the point. The point is, this is a big threat. So much so. We know how much Batman loves Gotham City. We know how much he wants to protect it. The point of those panels were to say... This is this is so big. This threat is so big. He's got to even set aside his love and and desire to protect Gotham City to go deal with this threat. So mm-hmm. yeah, ridiculous. Just just completely ridiculous. Uh, all right. Anyway, let's move on. Um, Batman Beyond the White Knight um, book four is up next. Script art and covers by Sean Murphy, Dave Stewart on the colors, and World Design does the letters. Uh, what do you think of this one? Uh, I actually, uh, th- this was, uh, uh, Sean, I, I enjoyed this, this sort of built on the, this finally came into its own because I was, I was beginning not to like Terry McGinnis, but uh, this, this one sort of saved it for me. It sort of went back on track here in issue four. We got some, we got some signs that Terry McGinnis is not the complete idiot that I feared he would become, uh, because it's revealed here that Terry McGinnis, that the last words that his father told him was, you know, um, beware of, uh, Derek Powers and that, uh, Derek Powers is a bad guy. Uh, you know, don't trust him. And, um, and so Terry McGinnis is torn because Derek Powers in this issue, Derek Powers has basically tells him that, you know, Bruce Wayne is responsible for killing your father, Warren McGinnis. It's Bruce Wayne's fault. And so that's why the Batman Beyond, Terry McGinnis, has been sort of trying to take out Bruce Wayne, trying to take out Batman. And meanwhile, Derek Powers, Derek Powers, just a reminder to those people, Derek Powers actually earlier worked 
helped actually worked in secret with Bruce Wayne to help build all Batman's technology. And what's fascinating here is as uh, because of the previous storylines with the in the Murphy verse, we know that Bruce Wayne was in jail uh, because, uh, in, in fact, we know that Bruce Wayne isn't really a Wayne. But we also know that he was he just, he went to jail while he was in jail. He married Harley Quinn so so that Harley Quinzel could not testify against him because she was a wife and because she had she would have spousal immunity. Meanwhile, he lost his empire and Derek Power sort of took over the Wayne Empire, and we discover we discover that uh, Derek Powers here actually has an agenda, and he's manipulating Terry McGinnis into believing that, in fact, there's going to be an, an, an alien invasion, and that Derek Powers is using all his knowledge, all, the, all those wonderful toys, to quote the Joker, that Derek Powers built for, for Bruce Wayne, for the Batman. He's utilizing all that to build an army, ostensibly to fight this alien invasion. But I'm sure it's just a bunch of hogwash. But Derek Powers is, is saying that to Terry McGinnis to try to get him on his side. Meanwhile, Bruce Wayne is, uh, along with uh, the Joker, Jack Napier, uh, via a chip in his head is they're looking for they're looking for Jacqueline Napier uh the Joker's daughter Harley and the Joker's daughter and they're looking for her but she's befriended by Derek Powers as well Derek Powers actually essentially doesn't quite kidnap but sort of takes Jackie Quinzel uh pardon me <laughs> takes Jack Jacqueline Napier the the daughter of Harley Quinn and the Joker, and he, he she's got very good hacking skills, and Derek Powers wants to use her hacking skills to further his machinations uh, to ultimately, uh, you know, uh, prepare to create more of a police state. It's, it's maybe we get that a lot, this idea of bad guys trying to create a police state, and Derek Powers appears to be doing the same thing. We, we've gotten that a number of times through Fear State and Joke and, and other other large Batman big events. But the, it feels different here in the Murphyverse. I like Sean Gordon Murphy's take on this. It seems a little bit outrageous that Derek Powers is going to actually try to pull a fast one and actually believes what, what, what is the evidence that he has that there's, an, there's an, going to be an alien invasion. Um, I like the character work here. Great character work. Uh, it's discovered that Barbara Gordon proposed to Dick Grayson in the past. Her and Dick Grayson, actually, they're separated, but they have a five-year-old son. Uh, we know that the Duke is the new Robin. The Duke has a confrontation with Dick Grayson here, who is still a member of the GTO. Uh, Bruce Wayne has been uh, B Commissioner Barbara Gordon, uh, orchestrated the escape of Bruce Wayne from the clutches of the GTO. She'd rather have Bruce Wayne being Batman, trying to get to the bottom of what Derek Powers is really up to. Meanwhile, of course, Derek Powers has recruited now both Jacqueline uh, Napier, the daughter of Harley Quinn and Joker, as well as recruiting, uh, uh, as well as recruiting Terry McGinnis, the Batman Beyond. So all the chess pieces are moved into place. We're only four issues in here, and I'm really enjoying this. I'm. I think Sean Gordon Murphy is doing a great job with this storyline. I, you know, and the art continues to be, I think, fantastic. I, I just. I'm really enjoying this. All, all the all this work, all this the detail, the character work, the dialogue. I'm just this is just fun. I, I just I really enjoy reading this and I think it's and it's relatively easy to follow too, because I do note that one of the tricks I use is if I gotta read it twice, 
uh, and, and often I do, but this one I, I actually I thought I thought I caught on reasonably well after the first read, so that's always a good sign. <laughs> so, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, uh, you mentioned this idea of you know fascism and fascist people as uh, villains, and, and right, we talked about this God three years ago, four years ago, maybe. Yeah, uh, we started mentioning God. I'm tired of you know fascism as villains in comics, but. Again, to go back to what we were talking about earlier, how comics have always been political, that's what we see as the big political villain, at least in the U.S. these days, right? Fascism. We've got you know con- uh, people on the the conservative side or the, or the right side, as it's called, right left, you know, in your b- values beliefs that are going way toward more toward a fascist bent, right? Less personal liberties, and it's so interesting, right? Like they want freedom, they want liberty but they don't want to give it to anybody else unless you agree with what they say, which is exactly what fascism is, right? Like you don't get to decide. We tell you what you believe. Um, and so it's not surprising to me um, that comics are leaning that way. And more and more of the villains are, are fascism now, um, which yeah, can get a little bit old. Uh, I felt like this was very much a kind of a catch up issue uh, in terms of action. There wasn't a whole heck of a lot. Um it's sort of a, a transitional issue to, to get us from the first part of the story to the second part of the story. At least that's how it feels to me because yeah, from the beginning, it very much felt like you mentioned this, that Terry McGinnis was working for Derek powers and yeah, especially last issue, the issue before he seemed very buddy, buddy seemed like Derek powers very much a mentor to him. And it was, you're kind of disappointed in Terry, right? Because he's always been portrayed in the regular DCU as a very, you know, intelligent, worthy successor of Bruce Wayne. You're like, man, this guy falls for Derek Powers' shtick. Like, I, I'm not going to root for him. And then, yeah, we find out at the end of this issue, uh, it almost feels like the whole point of the issue was so that we would find out that, you know, right at the end before Terry's father was killed, that he says, yeah, Derek Powers is insane. Yeah. Uh, someone needs to stop him. So it's great. Uh, I, and I loved the, the transition on that page. I love the fact that it's all on one page. Uh, it's colored in as Terry's remembering his father telling him this and, and hugging him because uh, they'd kind of had a, um, a bad interaction the day before. And his father said some things that hurt Terry very deeply. Uh, and his father apologized for those and then says, Derek Powers is insane. And then we get the picture of them hugging. And that's all colored monochromatically in this blue purplish color, um, you know, which kind of suits this idea of, sadness or you know terry remembering his father uh that that you know moment that meant a lot to him after his father apologized and and whatnot and then the last time they got to embrace uh it's it's very much tinged in sadness and then you scroll down and you get warren mcginnis's headstone and as you continue to scroll there's this close-up picture of terry mcginnis's face rendered very wonderfully by sean gordon's uh, awesome line work and superimposed over that is the Batman beyond symbol and it's all monochromatically colored in red to show the anger, right? Like the sense of determination on his face. He's going to make Derek powers pay and his mother's in the background. Now, Terry, where are you going? And he's, you know, uh, I have work to do is his response, right? Like that, that's such a powerful, wonderful page uh, backgrounds all in black and you don't need anything other than that. And I, I just, I mean, the fact that both those moments are on the same page tells you everything you need to know. And, at least for me, kind of uh, reinforced, yes, okay, Terry McGinnis d- is on the, the right side here. He does know what he's doing. He hasn't been fooled by Derek Powers 
and we hope that Derek Powers, you know, gets his comeuppance. Um, the other thing that I love about the Sean Gordon Murphy verse is just the little tweaks that he's done, whether purposefully or not. Like uh, there was an essay in the first issue of, of this uh, latest volume talking about why he chose Jason Todd to be the first Robin. It was inadvertent. <laughs> he accidentally did that. Um, put it in one of the, the uh, issues of the, the first Batman and White Knight, but then has figured out a way to make that work and make it interesting. And uh, Bruce Wayne not being a Wayne, again, something very interesting. Um, Dick Grayson and uh, leaning toward fascism and being sort of lost. Again, something that would never happen in the regular DCU, uh, but is an interesting tweak here. So that that's sort of what I love most about the Sean Gordon Murphy verse, what he's done here, the little things that he's changed that don't necessarily stop the characters from being recognizable as who they are, but open up a, a vast array of, of new and different stories that he can tell with those same characters. So um, I'm definitely a fan of, of what he's doing. And DC was very smart to sort of give him this own universe to play in. He's doing a fantastic job. Yeah. Uh, up next, we have DC versus Vampires Killers, number one. This is from writer Matthew Rosenberg. Pencils are by Mike Bowden with Eduardo Mello. Inks by LeBeau Underwood, Livesey, Mike Bowden, and Eduardo Mello. Colors by Antonio Fabella and letters by Troy Petrie. Um, no co-write from James Tynan on this one. Matthew Rosenberg going solo. Uh, here's what I'm struck by when it comes to this DC versus Vampires stuff. So... Never at any point has DC said this is out of continuity. It's not black label or anything. Uh, and I think the reason they're not putting the black label on there is because they don't necessarily want, want to say this is for older readers, right? They want younger readers to, to dive in here. But I think based on the early success, like maybe they said, okay, Tynan and Rosenberg will give you your mini series to go ahead and tell DC versus vampires um, and maybe it's going to be, you know, seven issues, I think it is, or eight issues, and we'll let you tell your story. Uh, it immediately was a big hit, and so now we're getting all these one-shots. We're getting told there's going to be a second volume. Um, it would not surprise me if Tynan and Rosenberg had two endings in, two endings in mind for that first series based on how, how it was received after the first, let's say, two or three. And the ending we're going to get to that miniseries now is likely not an ending at all. This has very much become sort of Marvel zombies or deceased that Tom Taylor had over at, uh, at DC, where it, it's been wildly popular. So rather than just give us a self-contained seven-issue story, this is going to go on indefinitely. They're going to keep making one-shots. They're going to keep making minis. They're going to keep giving us most of the heroes and villains of the DC universe being turned into vampires, including Superman, which... Yeah, I don't know how that works either. Like, how is a person who gets his power from solar radiation becoming a vampire when he can't be exposed to solar radiation? That hasn't been explained yet. Doesn't make any sense to me. But regardless, I never from the beginning was a huge fan of this. I thought it was okay. It definitely had some scenes that were interesting, putting Jan in a blender uh, or Zan, <laughs> Zan. blender from the Wonder Twins <laughs> was certainly a, a choice. Um, but yeah, this feels like it's gotten to be this really broad story. That's going to go on for a really, really long time. I mean, I, it, again, it's just, I don't think it's for me. Um, I rather would have had a story that just was seven, eight issues self-contained and be done with it. 
uh, again, I mean, maybe it goes back to my pro- proclivities. I don't like seeing heroes become villains. I didn't like the fact that Hal Jordan was a vampire and was killing the Flash. I didn't like it. It's, Interesting as it was to see him put Zan in a blender, literally, uh, I didn't necessarily enjoy seeing that, seeing uh, Hal Jordan be the one to do that. So, um, yeah, I just I feel like this is going to go on. They're going to drag it on. And we're not going to get an ending until the sales start to diminish. And at that point, it's it might be like, well, who, it's gone on too long. You know, it's outstated. It's welcome. I'd rather this the creators would have said you know what, we're going to stick with the story we had. This is the idea that we always had and let it end. Even if it's, you're ending it while it's still on a, on a high note and people are clamoring for more. Um, again, I, I don't know. It's all speculation on my part. Um, but yeah, this definitely feels like in a way it's gone off the rails and there's no direction. And it's just this big open-ended world where vampires have taken over the DCU. I don't see any end in sight based on this particular issue. Uh, I know I didn't talk about it, any of the particular, you know, moments or events that happened in this issue, but it's Harley Quinn against vampires, basically. Uh, she makes some really dumbass decisions, but I guess certain versions of Harley are going to do that. For being, you know, the supposed genius level intellect, she's always made really dumb decisions. Uh, <laughs> you know, falling in love with the Joker, not the least of them, so. Uh, but I'll let Rocky, t- if he wants to recap, um, I just don't have much to say about this. I'm, I'm sort of disappointed in the editorial direction of this. And that's not to take away from the tech. It's technically a good comic. The art's good. It's paced really, really well from Rosenberg. Um, I just, I don't like this open-ended feel, how the scope of the story has, has felt like it's, it's creeping along and we're expected to just, you know, keep buying more and more of this DC versus vampire stuff. It's an interesting concept. I would have loved to have, you know, self-contained story to see the heroes of the DCU overcome these very powerful monsters. At the end of the day, the myth of what a vampire is and the powers they have are very powerful. And, you know, we've had vampires in the main DCU for a long time with I vampire and whatnot. And then the story started out about that. And now it's crept far beyond that. And then we've, you know, got the reveal that Nightwing's actually the king of the vampires. Lame. Like, really, it's almost like they picked who who would be, like, the biggest shock? You know, who's the one that everybody loves? Oh, it's Dick Grayson. You know, if not Wally West, maybe they realize if they did it to Wally, Wally fans might literally go and burn DC headquarters down. They're so tired of Wally getting the short end of the stick. So let's pick the other, you know, main pillar of the DCU who embodies hope and make Dick Grayson be the king of vampires it it doesn't work for me so i don't know maybe you feel different rocky well i I will say that that uh this issue uh, of dcv vampires it's a one shot called killers and uh i'm not even sure why it's called killers to be honest with you i it it, it, it picks up a major, major plot point from issue one of DC versus Empires. And that major plot point was, and Batman died protecting the secret. And the secret was, is that Lex Luthor gave Batman some of his blood because Lex Luthor died. Before he died, he gave uh, Alex, he gave, uh, this last name is Bennett, forget his, the I vampire character who ultimately ended up dying. But before he died, he gave Batman a sample of Lex Luthor's blood. And the key to the defeating the vampires was in Lex Luthor's blood. It's revealed in this issue, not even in the main series proper, 
that that it's the blood itself that can kill a vampire. I thought it was something in the blood that would have to be utilized before the vampire could be killed. But the play here is is kind of maybe I think it's it's interesting. But you know what's funny? We talked about Harley Quinn earlier. <laughs> How she's there's different iterations of her. You talk about all the heroes becoming killers, which bothers you. Well, now we have a villain, or at least somebody who's an antihero, becoming the major hero of this story. And that's Harley Quinn. Harley Quinn ends up being injected. She injects herself with Lex Luthor's blood because. Jim Gordon ends up with the vial and he gives it to Harley Quinn of all people. I mean, you got to imagine how low the D, how many heroes in the DC universe must already be dead for Jim Gordon to give the last hope for humanity to Harley Quinn. I mean, come on. That's what happens here. And it seems very, very kind of hard for me to believe because of all the people that would you would think for sure would be the victim of becoming a vampire already. I would think Harley Quinn would be up at the top of the list. Harley Quinn. So in that respect, that that plot point lacks verisimilitude for me because I, I see Harley Quinn. Um, this is definitely writing her way above her pay grade, way above her intelligence grade, way above her character grade. Like it's... It, this is not something that really – this doesn't make a heck of a lot of sense to me. I don't see Jim Gordon doing this. This is clearly done to prop up sales because it's a Harley Quinn character. And we, we got the death of Harley Quinn coming out. And now we have Harley Quinn. The, the, the humanity rests on Harley Quinn saving humanity. I mean, now, that's that's me being cynical. Now let's me be optimistic and fun here. This makes it kind of fun. I mean, what a wild card. Harley Quinn, the blood of Harley Quinn is the – Last hope that humanity has to survive in the, in the, in the body of a reformed psychopath, a reformed mental, mentally ill patient, call her what you will, whether you like it or not, the, save, the saving of humanity comes down to this former inmate of Arkham Asylum, this former girlfriend of the Joker. I mean, and, <laughs> and she's crazy. She's zany. She's betrayed. Uh, it even suggests here that she has somewhat of a, you know, it's even... There's some sexuality here. I mean, uh, she ends up being roommates with Catwoman in here. Catwoman ends up being actually a vampire who ultimately betrays her. Uh, one thing that that really throws me off about this series, which is, and it's a little bit frustrating, and I don't know, I got mixed feelings about it, is we readers, no one is privy as to who a vampire is. I mean, literally anybody could be a vampire. I mean, Catwoman could be a vampire and she ended up being a vampire. Everybody could have ended up being a vampire. You, you just can't tell. There's no actual visual cue uh, because they can hide their teeth. So there's no, we readers are constantly in the dark as to who's a vampire, who isn't. Now that forms the central basis of this story, but at the same time, it's hard for me to get a handle on maybe, you know, the cool factor of how's the bad guy going to win. The, the idea here of Harley Quinn winning at the end of the day here. I mean, Harley Quinn, she doesn't have a single coherent thought. She has a hard enough time stringing two sentences together without cracking a joke. It's really hard for me to imagine where, what is she going to do? So the only way Harley Quinn's going to save humanity is by, is by pure folly and ridiculous, obscene circumstances. And that takes away from at least the perception of believability, uh, the verisimilitude I talked about. I mean, 
Dr. Midnight Dies, Mr. Terrific, Clayface, Solomon Grundy, Catwoman, Mad Hatter. We got a whole string of deaths in this issue. And we've had a string of deaths. All of DC, DC's C-listers and D-listers, they're being killed off in all these one-shots. And final, to build on one of your other points, uh, I would have really liked, I share your your criticism that this should all be one series. Why is this a one-shot? This is a major plot point. The the major plot point, Batman's secret, the the blood that he got from Lex Luthor through through Andrew Bennett. Uh that that this isn't a separate one shot. Why? This should this should be part of a major series. They should have done this like they did it in Justice or or something of that ilk. But um in any event, people are buying this and I think ultimately people will buy this regardless. Harley Quinn is on the cover now, but now are people going to buy this now? Hoping, you know, now knowing that the fate of the DC universe rests on Harley Quinn. Is that what we're going to look forward to? The final battle between Dick Grayson and Harley Quinn? I don't know. I, for, uh, I, 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 I can't help but feel that that lacks a little bit of imagination. Uh, but I don't know. Maybe, hopefully more readers. I, I want this to sell well. I want DC to get higher sales. And we, we got some really great, great comic book stories by DC uh Day, you know, every month, and the sales aren't quite there as much as I would like to see. So I hope this resonates more with fans. But so I got mixed feelings about this. I'm not sure how I feel about it. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, well, let's move on. Next up, we have Action Comics number 1044, War World Revolution Part Two, from writer Philip Kennedy Johnson. Art is by Ricardo Federici and Will Conrad. Colors by Lee Luffridge. Letters by Dave Sharp. And then uh, the backup story, A World Without Clark Kent, Part 1, also from Philip Kennedy Johnson. Dave Lapham is the artist, Trish Mulvihill on colors, and Dave Sharp on letters. Uh, what do you think of the main story? I, I enjoyed the fact in the main story we, we got an origin of the characters known as Orphan and Darling. Now, just to give a little bit of a, uh, little bit of a backup here, the um, – Orphan is this character. It, it's a baby in, in a giant test tube. It, it almost looks like a fetus or a baby in a giant test tube. And it's got a it's got a mechanical pet called Darling. So we got this orphan character, which is this baby in a test tube. And we got a sort of mechanical pet dog called Darling. And it's from the beginning, we've, we've had these orphan boxes. Now, just to explain this to listeners... If you think of a mother box, think of the uh, Snyder movies, the Snyderverse. A mother box is what Darkseid used. Mother boxes would could transport you from universe to universe. That's what a mother box does. And a mother box is square. An orphan box, as introduced by PKJ in this War World saga, is triangular. It's a four-dimensional triangle. It's like a pyramid. And an orphan box transcends time and space. And it's powered by ultimately source wall energy. And what I found really interesting here, and I want to give PKJ some credit, is that he continues to build on the mythology. So while it is perhaps a criticism to say that this story might feel to some like it's not ending, those of us who have been enjoying it, I, and I, I am one of them, I like how he continues to build on the mythology and how he builds up the mythology of the origin of the of the of orphan and I guess this this uh, darling character and it goes back to it, it, PKJ references an old Justice League series called No Justice which uh, which was a Justice League series 
prior to death metal and that the at the end of that series the source wall was destroyed in in ultimately was destroyed following a battle between the legion of doom and the justice league and it's revealed here that the destruction of the source wall released energies that ended up destroying a ship that was capt that was uh, piloted by orphan's parents and orphan uh, and and these her parents are Orphan's parents are from a planet called Valoron, and we don't know anything about her parents other than her father's. The father's name is Deg, and I, I don't even know if Orphan is a is a, a male baby or a, a male fetus or a female. It's really unimportant. In any event, the ship was destroyed, and the ship was destroyed, and it was very tragic. Mom and dad, and seemingly uh, their unborn child. Uh, the unborn child of this couple who's still in her mother's womb was caught in source wall energy and their mechanical pet called darling was there as well. And following that explosion, they were, this orphan was found by Mongol and, and Mongol noticed that it was, uh, he calls it a, a tech. It is a techno familiar and adaptive synthetic animal life form programmed to serve and protect its Valerian masters. Well, it was imbued with source wall energy and Mongol utilized orphan because this, this fetus, this fetus, the unborn child absorbed its own mother and sort of, and, and merged sort of had some sort of symbiotic bondage with the, the mechanical pet dog called darling. And so that that explains that. And what's interesting about it is that Superman wants, you know, you know, is asking Orphan for help, and Orphan is telling Superman, "Look, I know Superman. You are you are still dying. You're still dying uh, from the. Uh, you're still dying from uh, from your wounds from the breach. It's still killing you because Superman. We know got all that gray hair, and and he basically the Orphan says, "Look, I can I can help you, and I can undo some of this." And we can transcend the infinite paths. And we don't know what that means. There's some double speak here and there's some, maybe some, I don't know, some uh, philosophical musings by, by Orphan here. But she says, when fueled with Genesis, they can transcend life and death, space and time, the entropy that gives time and direction and meaning. Uh, they transcend the infinite paths and find the inevitable truth at their center. And so <laughs> that's what the orphan boxes do. And so exactly what in order to in order to get Superman the power and for for the orphan to heal war world and for them to win the day, they need Theola. So both Superman's going to have to obtain the Genesis fragment and also Theola, who's on Earth in the backup feature. Theola is being revived by uh, Steel and Lo uh, Supergirl and Lois Lane. Theola is going to have to come and, and there's going to be some intermingling between the orphan, Theola, Theola, and while Superman confronts the Genesis fragment and somehow all these things are going to end up orchestrating together in order to, to win the day through, through a way in which we're not really sure. But in any event, I thought that was the most interesting part of the issue. 
it's interspersed with character moments where Superman's talking to young theologian children, uh, where he makes a Kandorian puzzle box and he writes and sort of like he writes on the walls of war world and he sort of contributes to the mythology of war world. Meanwhile, they also end up fighting this character called the mother. This mother was the entity that Mongol befriended and sort of captured, uh, uh, in a previous issue, in a previous flashback, Mother is ultimately killed uh, by Mongol, and the energies of this Mother are used to create, uh, to power up and revive Light Ray, uh, who uh, who we know uh, is going to be who Omak is in love with, and this Light Ray becomes a new character by uh, a new character by the name of uh, I believe the new character's her name is going to be. Um, Black Razor. So Mongol sort of revives Light Ray and gives her a new name and he wants to use Light Ray as a way to lure Superman out so Superman manages to obtain the Genesis Fragment and ultimately um, move all the pieces into play. So, look, if you're with it this long, I, you're going to be with the story now. I, I remember PKJ he wrote a, a series called The Last God. And it didn't get a lot of high sales. A lot of people didn't read it. I read it. I enjoyed it. Some people didn't. But interestingly enough, some of the people who I know were critical of The Last God are enjoying this War World saga much more. But this is getting this is getting more complex, this storyline. But I hope it will reap some rewards. And uh, just a quick shout out to the, the backup feature called The World Without Clark Kent there's really not much that happens there other than the fact that Theola, that Natasha Irons ends up communicating with her father, Steele, saying that we need Theola here. We need her to help merge uh, with some, uh, uh, with an orphan box, with an orphan box here. So, you know, we need her. And so they're, they're essentially trying to revive uh, the, the Supergirl ends up ultimately re reviving or attempting to revive Theola by taking her into the sun to give her the energy and at the end, finally, there's this, the, the secret is your favorite character shows up, uh, <laughs> Jace, Amanda Waller shows up, of course, and she wants to recruit an old enemy of Superman's called Conduit to try to retrieve the Genesis Fragment. And of course, Amanda Waller wants to play the power game and she wants to utilize Conduit in order to do so. And uh, for those of you who don't know who Conduit is, Conduit is a, a remnant of a, a supervillain back from the old triangle days of Superman. He was always a character. He grew up with Clark Kent in Smallville, his origin, and he was always somebody that came, came in second always to Clark Kent. And so he always harbored a resentment toward uh, Clark Kent and... Uh, uh, he ultimately was involved in a storyline that involved the death of Clark Kent. But in any event, that's where this all comes into play. Uh, I got to give compliments to PKJ. There's so many moving parts here. Uh, the art here is great on both this and the, the backup with uh, David Lapham's art. Uh, I, I think it's, if I'm starting to be corrected on that, I think, I think it's um, Lapham on yeah, the backup. David Lapham on the backup. And, uh, and the main storyline, I'm not sure who's the artist on. Uh, two artists, Will Conrad and Ricardo Federici. Right. Yeah. But yeah, a, a lot, a lot to take in. Uh, it, we got a lot, a lot was contained in this issue and that's why I love it. I feel like I got a, uh, we're going to, you're going to get a lot of bang for your buck here in this issue. A lot of bang for your buck. I know, I think, is it, 
I don't know if the, what the price tag is. I don't know why they're, they're not. I guess they're so embarrassed about what they're charging that they're not putting the price tags on the covers anymore. Uh, but we don't get them on. <laughs> I don't know. Is it four ninety nine or three ninety nine? These issues. Uh, I think because it has a backup, it's four ninety nine. Right. Yeah. But I think it's actually worth it this time because I I'm I'm enjoying this, man. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, we do get a big chunk of story, and you're right. Regardless of whether uh, PKJ is doing this or he's doing, you know, Last God or or whatever, I mean, I'm a huge fan of what he's doing on the Alien series over at Marvel. You know that that the old Fox property, Aliens, Xenomorphs, and whatnot. His he is one of the best world builders of any comic writer working today. That being said. Do we really need, you know, more world building for Superman? I mean, his world's pretty well established. That being said, some of the things he's doing, like this triangular uh, orphan box, are fascinating. But again, I, I it just doesn't feel like a Superman story to me. And so I was thinking about this as I read it. I read it twice earlier in the week and then just yesterday. I reread it to see if there was something I was missing. And you know what I, what I realized? <clears throat> We're sort of giving... Um, John can a tough time over in uh, Superman, son of Kal-El book about how he hasn't earned the right to be called Superman. So let uh, just as an interesting experiment, I started thinking, what if we had swapped them, right? Obviously we wouldn't be getting anywhere near the same story in Superman, son of Kal-El. Superman's not all of a sudden going to become bisexual. Uh, you know, Clark Kent, <laughs> right? So it's a totally different story. Tom Taylor gets to write Superman, who's his favorite character. And he would, I'm sure he would have done something great with it. Right. And John Kent could have been the one to go to war world. And, you know, the struggle of the inexperience of having his powers. Excellent. And of, and of, of wearing that symbol and fighting against, you know, some of these uh, war zoons who, you know, see, see it as a betrayal. Some of the other slaves who's, you know, can be inspired by it. That would have been fascinating, right? That this could have been how John Kent really grew up, quote unquote, right? Because we all know about artificially being aged up. He could have dealt with that while he was there. He, you know, the trauma. He could have been trapped on Warworld. It could have triggered, you know, memories of trauma from him being trapped in the volcano. Uh, I just, I fell down that rabbit hole thinking about it all day yesterday and thinking, man, that would have been something else that would have been fantastic i think that would have been better again i'm not an editor at dc but that being said these ideas are awesome the world building is awesome the origin of orphan and darling is cool light ray being turned into black razor like all that stuff is really cool but guess what's getting lost superman superman himself feels lost he almost feels like an afterthought in the story and the book is called Action Comics. It was the first superhero title ever that starred the first superhero ever. Mm. So, you know, it's a little nitpick because it is enjoyable. Um, but, yeah, what might have been? I, I mean, I think in, in a separate universe, it, they did swap them out. In, in a different part of our multiverse, it was Tom Taylor writing Clark Kent Superman and PKJ taking John Kent on a, a real journey. So uh, as far as the art goes – I thought both artists did a good job. These are not artists that should be in the same book telling the same story. The transition was very jarring when we went from the Will Conrad pages to the Ricardo Federici pages. Their styles are completely different, so I didn't really enjoy that too much. Um, 
I don't have much to add about the backup either, much like your, yourself. It, uh, it was all sort of set up. Do I like what's about to happen with this idea of, of the sun maybe being what saves uh, Theola? Yeah, I, I love that idea. I mean, it's very in keeping with the fact that she's a Kryptonian, so not a lot happened there. And then as soon as I saw Amanda, I actually didn't mind Amanda Waller showing up here because <laughs> in her first sentence, she says, Thank you for seeing me, Mr. Braverman. So as soon as, you know, it's, it's oh, here's poor old Kenny Braverman, Dan Jurgen's <laughs> creation. Um, and if anybody remembers pre-Crisis Superman, which I know not a lot of people do, um, there was a character called uh, Moosey Draper was his, um, Carl Draper's name. Moosey was everybody called him. He was a little chubby. Uh, and he was this guy who just wasn't very popular. He had a huge crush on... Uh, on Lana and obviously Lana only ever had eyes for Clark and he was very jealous of Superboy and of Clark Kent. And he eventually becomes this, um, this villain called the master jailer. But uh, he did at one point become a supervillain called Cantor uh, just very briefly in a couple issues of Superboy comic back in the day. And I, I just, it was, he was a very tropey, you know, typical teenage bully type character. Um, but I always kind of enjoyed him in the Superboy stories because he was just such a such a jerk and couldn't see the forest for the trees. And then he, he kind of went away. I don't know that we've ever seen Master Jailer uh, post-crisis, but he sort of got replaced with, with Kenny Braverman, who became Conduit, who sort of has a similar uh, thing. He didn't have a crush on Lana, but yeah, he always finished. He was a very good athlete, but he always finished second to Clark. And then when he eventually deduces Clark as Superman, uh, and this leads into the death of Clark Kent storyline that Rocky referenced. Uh, when he eventually deduces that Clark Kent and Superman are one and the same, then he he becomes even more enraged because like, oh, the only reason I always came in second was because Clark was using his superpowers, even though in the John Byrne uh, you know version of Superman he didn't get his full powers till adulthood. And here was the other thing that uh, about Kenny Braverman he had daddy issues, right? Because his dad used to berate him all the time for always coming in second, not hey you beat all these other guys, you know great job. Thanks for trying so hard. No, it was always like, how can you always lose? How can you always lose? And so he just had this inferiority complex. And eventually Superman Clark decides he's going to fake his death as Clark Kent to protect the ones that he loves from conduit, Kenny Braverman. So I have a, I have a soft spot in my heart. He is part of the triangle arrow when Dan Jurgens introduced him. And yeah, I, I, I can, and I can never think of the name Kenny Braverman. I always, it's always poor old Kenny Braverman because he just the way Jurgens does it it's so over the top. You just feel so bad for the guy, especially when you find out what a jerk his father was. So I actually didn't mind Amanda Waller showing up here if it means that we're going to get some Kenny Braverman. Uh, I don't know why. I, he's such a sad sack of a of a of a villain. I don't know why I like him so much. But uh, anyway. Uh, well, let's move on. I don't have a heck of a lot to say about the next issue that we're going to talk about. It's Swamp Thing number 14. Rom V is the writer. Mike Perkins on art. Mike Spicer on colors. Aditya Bidikar on letters. Much like every single issue of this comic, technically a wonderful comic. The art is fantastic. Uh, this is not a case of meh covers. Both of them are cool. Um, we get a, a Green Lantern version of Swamp Thing on one of the covers, which we get in the story as well. And then the variant cover, it, just the detail of Levi mid transformation into Swamp Thing is, is stunning. It's just stunning from Steve Beach. 
Um, so I thought that was interesting as well. The war has come to earth um, between the, the Parliament of Industry and all the other parliaments, basically. Uh, Ron V is doing a you know, fantastic job of building on that. Um, I almost am surprised that this story is moving at such a quick pace, though, because there's a lot here. Like last time we were told the war is coming and now the war, all of a sudden the war is here, you know, and they're just battling. Um, there's not, and we don't really see any of the other other than Green Lantern, any of the rest of the Justice League hanging around uh, or, or trying to help out which is kind of interesting. I, I don't know, like maybe, maybe it's the case like with um, Batman Fortress with this, where just, nobody knows where Superman is. Well, he's on war world, right? Except he's on war world in continuity for some books, but then not for others. Like, yeah, don't, don't try to figure out the continuity kids. Uh, you'll just hurt your head. Um, but be that as it may, I, I enjoy this. It feels like a big story. It feels like something that'll have lasting consequences for swamp thing. Uh, I still don't know if I want Levi Kamei to be Swamp Thing long term, or do I prefer Alec Holland? I'm, I, I honestly, maybe I don't even have a preference because uh, I'm not the biggest Swamp Thing fan in the world. So um, I'm probably not, you know, buying a Swamp Thing title regardless of who is Swamp Thing, and haven't you know ever been a swamp, regular Swamp Thing reader. So uh i you know whatever the majority of swamp thing fans like I'll, I'll go with that but regardless of if you're a swamp thing fan or not this is a very interesting story um and i love some of the things that ram v has to say about us as you know as humans are we a disease are we a cancer are we a sickness you know the argument's been made many times we certainly have <laughs> jacked up our world's um ecosystem quite a bit uh, and now we're starting to pay for the prices, the, pay the price for that global warming and whatnot. So uh, interesting choices that, that he's making here. And, you know, at the end of the day, I, I think it's going to be a little bit of a tropey ending where, where yeah, the, these this this nature, this whatever this invasion that's come to, to wipe out humanity because we're a sickness on the planet is going to be you know repelled and humanity is going to prevail. Um but maybe we don't deserve to. And again, a bit of a tropey ending. It's been done before, um, but I'm certainly enjoying the journey as Ramby takes us there. So, what are your thoughts? Uh, yeah, I I agree. Uh, this this is uh, Ramby has very much built on the idea of these bad ideas and good ideas, and this actual issue is actually called the alien idea. And you know, probably the perfect uh, uh, visual symbol of how Ram V chose to write this in very good collaboration with artist Mike Perkins and colorist uh, uh, Mike Spicer is uh, on the same page where the title exists, The Alien Agenda, you see that Levi enters the spores, these these space spores, which are forming a lattice powered by solar flares around the Earth, and they're creating a cosmic drive. And their goal is essentially to wipe out humanity that they almost view like a cancer. And as Levi enters the, enters one of the spores, you can see the his his the thought the the, the thought boxes or the, the the captions actually change color because he becomes one with the spore and so he starts off with his own sort of like almost like light i guess almost like light i got light light blue light bay like green whatever color that is and slowly becomes more orange because he assumes it comes part of the consciousness of this alien spore 
and this alien's spore's name is called Zitar, and it, it's one mind, and this alien has one mind, and it's and what Levi does is that he introduces the concept of doubt into this spore, and the idea that you know even though humanity might be a cancer. Levi reminds the spore that, you know, all like like all ca- cancer cells used to be healthy cells, but they became mutated. And so do you destroy the cancer or do you uh, do you destroy the cancer knowing that it used to be a he- healthy, it used to be good uh, or do you or do you give it another chance? Do you do you give it the you know, do you like don't don't wipe it out? You know, there is um there's no preserving the green without preserving humanity because the concepts of preservation, continuity, memory all stem from the human idea. And so once again, it's, he flows this all back into the idea that what to the, all those ideas, it's, it's very metaphorical. It's, it's kind of deep and, and philosophical and it, it, it really very much a swamp thing, very typical of swamp thing. And, uh, from what I understand, I've, I've only read now two other, uh, swamp things, tales written by Alan Moore, but they're a very similar sort of approach in terms of heavy on metaphor, heavy on going deep on the introspection of what it means to be human. And, and, uh, and there's always, of course, with here, we got the parliament of gears versus the, they want to wipe out humanity. They, they want the spores uh, to basically wipe out humanity, do the dirty work for them. So all that remains is the parliament of gears and machinery. And of course you got uh, at the end here, you got an intermingling of uh, this this character called the Trinity, and also with Hal Jordan issuing or powering up Swamp Thing with his willpower. So whatever whatever ideas that Levi has are now powered through Hal Jordan's willpower. As as we get this uh, interesting combination of Swamp Thing and Green Lantern, and much this you know in, very interesting. So we, we've. We, in the last few weeks, we got a lot of Green Lantern love. Last week, we got some Green Lantern emerging of Superman and Batman in uh, in a Green Lantern sort of one person Superman slash Batman Green Lantern entity, and here we have uh, the Green Lantern with Swamp Thing. So it's a lot, it's it's a it's a good good couple of weeks to be a Green Lantern fan, and you know. Uh, I don't know if this story necessarily moved the narrative forward all that much, but the art is fantastic, beautiful, beautiful cover B, uh, as you indicated, and I'm I'm I, I'm actually I like the fact that there there's a lot of story crammed in here. This is a it's a, there's only two more issues to go, and I'm I think that Ram V clearly has something to say, and he's got a whole literally he's got all kinds of ideas, and the concept of idea itself is actually the central part of his narrative. So. Interesting take. Yeah, I was trying to remember. I think is this the first time we've seen? So I, I know we've seen Swamp Thing as a Black Lantern. Yeah, and, which makes sense because you know he did he has died before. Uh, I know we've seen him as a White Lantern, which again that makes sense because you know he's the avatar of the Green, which represents life. Has he ever been any other lanterns other than Black and White before? Do you remember? <laughs> well, I'm going to say no, but I'm, I'm sure maybe somebody will correct me. Uh, yes, please, please leave a comment below if we're misremembering. Uh, it's been so long since I've read Blackest Night. Could I mean, he's a hopeful character. Could he have ever been a Blue Lantern? Certainly not orange or purple or, or violet, I should say. Um, so I don't think any of those uh, or red, not an angry character. I would think if he's ever been anything other than black and white, it would be green would make sense. Um, 
and clearly green here. And the only other one I could think is maybe blue. Um, but anyway, yeah, if somebody remembers one that we're missing other than the black and white, please let us know. Yeah. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Robin number 15, Parent Trap. This is from writer Joshua Williamson. Roger Cruz does the pencils. Norm Ratman on inks. Luis Goro on colors. And Troy Patreon letters. Uh, what would you think of this one? Uh, I was uh, I was, I was a little disappointed in this one, although there there's some fun to be had here. This is uh, – uh, first of all, I want to give a shout out. I, I love the cover. There's a cover B with uh, Flatline killing Robin. Uh, I mean, I, I, I long for Flatline to come back because I really enjoy her as a character in this series. And the good news is, is that... Uh, Wait, did you say killing? You said killing, Robin. Did I say killing? killing? Oh, kissing. Yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, my, I went my to bad. look at it going, where is she stabbing him somewhere <laughs> that I didn't see? <laughs> That's what happens when I talk too fast. But uh, yeah, she's she's kissing. Well, kissing, killing, I mean, hey, I mean, she's called Flatline. So maybe kissing, killing, is there a difference with her? I don't know. But uh, in any event, uh, yeah, Great, I love I love that cover. Now, as far as the issue itself, this issue, um, this involves an interrogation of, of Talia Algal by Director Chase of the DEO, and there's a lot of there's some misdirection in this issue. Talia ends up being ends up escaping the custody of the DEO, but it's all a ruse uh, because ultimately Director Chase makes a deal with Talia, saying I won't go after your son Damien for. I don't know what the hell Damien's ever done, but uh, uh, but I won't go after your son Damien if you basically if you work for me. In other words, Talia at the end of this issue would appear to become an agent, a secret agent of the DEO uh, within the on Lazarus Island to sort of inform the DEO what's going on with Lazarus Island and all the machinations that are going on there. And on a more uh, for me, the more the more interesting note is is what happens at the end where Damien, you know, Talia ends up being chased by Damien and Batman and ultimately Robin asks Damien asks Batman to let Talia go. He they they fight uh, or rather Talia and Batman fight. Damien gets in between them and says, "Mom, dad, quit your bakering. Dad, please let mom go." So and Talia takes off and I thought it was a little bit convenient. I I, I thought it was really odd that, that Batman would just let Talia go. I mean, she's kind of a wanted criminal and a killer. But let's face it. I mean, Batman uh, lets killers go all the time. Um, there's the it, You and I, I, mean, I guess we joke about it. I'm being a little bit facetious in how I'm saying this. But there, there's an awful lot of psychotic killers or murderers out there that Batman seems to conveniently work with and let go. And then, of course, especially the ones that he sleeps with. Uh, he seems to have, uh, he's very much uh, two-faced, <laughs> uh, and I'm not referencing his arch nemesis there, but uh, it's it's a little bit convenient here. Talia escapes to go be an agent for the DEO, or would appear to be. Meanwhile, Robin then is uh, called, and I think what is more interesting, at the end, Robin goes back to Lazarus Island, where he has a conversation with Connor Hawk, and they want to have Lazarus Island be a sanctuary for people just like them, lost souls. And I, I think even that seems really odd to me. Connor Hawk makes an interesting comment that I think is the most interesting in terms of he says, well, our fathers had caves, but we have an island. And I thought, well, okay, but 
there's an awful lot of lost souls on the planet. You really want Lazarus Island to be a place where they all end up going. I mean, ask the Amazons how that works for for abused women. You know, I mean, it, you might be biting off more than you can chew there. But I say that's somewhat tongue-in-cheek. But uh, it ends on a note that I think are going to make fans of Flatline like myself very happy. Lord Deathman shows up and says, Flatline is out of control. She's trying to kill me for good. <laughs> I couldn't help but laugh. <laughs> so I find that interesting. What is Flatline doing? What is she up to? And uh, how is this going to affect her relationship with Damien if he if, if Flatline becomes the killer just when Damien has given up killing? I mean, that's really going to throw a wrench into their relationship. So I actually think that adds sort of like a fun element here. And I don't know if this is meant a storyline to be meant to be taken seriously, but I, I feel I find this this story direction where this is suddenly gone. I find it to be more comical to me than anything else, but I'm actually kind of, I enjoy it. I continue to have fun with this series, uh, but I'm very disappointed to hear that uh, Williamson is leaving the title and that it, I think it ends next issue, doesn't it? In issue 16? I think it only, I, yeah. I don't know. I think it only. I think it ends next issue or this or an issue seventeen, but it's it's going to be short lived. But I I really like I love the the character of Flatline and the the idea that Damien might have and Connor might have their own place on Lazarus Island. Uh, what what is that going to mean for the mythology of that tournament? Are they going to continue to have that every year? What what does that mean? Is it going to be a refuge for lost souls to go and become martial arts fighters on Lazarus Islands? Is this the start of something new for the DC universe? A new type of mythology? A new a new type of thing moving forward? I don't know, but I I'm curious. I I really am. So I think this issue has uh, a lot to. Uh, I I don't I think. Most of this issue was boring. I don't. I don't think anything's going to come of Talia being an agent for the DEO. I can't believe Director Chase would actually believe that Talia. I mean, Talia can't keep her word. I mean, who on earth would trust Talia with anything? So I find it very hard to believe that. I mean, as if you have to worry. If somebody threatened Damien, if Batman, if if you walked up to Batman and said, "Do what I say, Batman," or "I'm going to hurt," "I'm going to," I promise you, "I'm going to hurt Damien." Batman would laugh at you. He'd say, good luck trying to hurt Damien. I mean, what, what can director Chase do? I, so her, her threats to Talia seem very empty to me. I didn't buy it for a second, but that's what we're asked to buy here. But the good news is I like Lord Death being almost killed by Flatline. Maybe we'll get some Flatline in future issues here before this series is uh, goes the way of the dodo bird. Yeah, so not next issue. 17 is Seven. Williamson's last issue. Don't know if that means the series is ending or not. Well, we we're, getting know, a, we're getting a Tim Drake Robin series though, right? We, we probably we are, don't want the redundancy. Yeah, but I mean that one's called Tim Drake Robin. We also know that we're getting a Mark Wade series called Batman versus Robin that's coming up. And yeah. that's going to be teased uh, when we talk about Detective Comics in a little bit as well. Yeah. All I know is we've gotten a heck of a lot of Talia lately between this and Detective Comics. Uh, we've gotten a lot of, a hell of a lot of Dr. Chase Meridian. So fans of Nicole Kidman should be very happy. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't necessarily understand why we're getting so much, but I, you know, I guess it works. Um, also, you know, we've gotten, the, you know, the return of, uh, of the DEO as, you know, somewhat of a, a, a player despite the fact supposedly it was dismantled uh, in, in Leviathan, but you know, that, that was all, <laughs> that was always problematic uh, 
anyway, right? Yeah. Um, but <laughs> obviously, this time, director Chase rather than um, than Bones, and that's not again Chase Meridian Doctor, and I can't remember what what's Chase is the last name of the director of D uh, of the DEO. I can't remember what her first name. I don't. I don't know. It's just Director Chase. Yeah, what they I call her. Yeah. I, I can't remember her last to. name. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't. Uh, Cameron Chase, that's what it is. Right. So yeah, I, I I don't know how I I feel about this. I have been enjoying, and we talked about how it felt like many times about how we felt like um, Williamson had taken Damien sort of backwards in terms of his maturity, but then eventually got to where he was and then even surpassed it. So I do like the maturity that Williamson brings to the character. So I am a little sad, uh, to, and, and I'm I'm <laughs> I'm surprised as the next guy how much I've been enjoying the series focused on Damien because I don't particularly care for the, the character, but I, I like where he's at now, and I do want to see this series continue. I'm no, nowhere near the fan of Flatline that you, that you are. Uh, I was happy that she wasn't around anymore. I'm not particularly excited that she's coming back. I don't know. She just she seems like a very tropey character to me with her crush on Damien and her, you know, very heightened teenage angsty emo feelings. Um, so, uh, I mean, it, it can work, but she hasn't been particularly interesting so far. The thing that struck me most about this issue, and this might, again, lead into what Mark Wade is doing. It also might lead into what Chip Zdarsky doing. He's about to start his run on the regular Batman title. So we know that Damien kind of went his own separate way. And then at the end of Shadow War, him and Bruce have a reconciliation, and now they're going to be Batman and Robin again. And then the very next issue of Robin, uh, you know what, Mom and Dad, stop fighting. I need to go my own way, just like you both did, and and sort of find my own path. Huge props to Damien. I totally respect that decision. I like that decision. He needs to not be called Robin if he's not partnered up with his dad anymore. That, that would be the only thing I would say about that. Give him his own identity, which I'm perfectly fine with. But again, don't think too hard because you'll sprain your brain. How is this all supposed to work? So did they reconcile the end of Shadow War so Zdarsky could have him in his title and say, okay, that takes place in between the end of Shadow War, but happens before this issue of Robin when they split up again? And then how does it fit into what Mark Wade's going to do in Batman versus Robin, which we know Talia is going to be a part of as well? Again, yeah, I don't. Apparently, don't, don't think about it too hard because it doesn't make any kind of sense. But I was just surprised. I'm like, they just reconciled. And now Damien's already saying, I'm going to go my own way. Yeah. I, but the theory on that is uh, court, uh, the island of Corto Maltese in Wayne Mark Wade's world's finest run. It's the island of Corto Maltese where the demon Nezha was imprisoned. Uh, the working theory is that Corto Maltese is actually Lazarus Island. Or the prisoner, or where the where they caged the demon Nezha was on Lazarus Island, and since Damien is now back on Lazarus Island, if the demon Nezha uh, is released or somehow escapes again, because the world's finest story takes place in the past, if if the demon Nezha escapes again uh, and somehow manipulates Damien, that would explain him uh, if he's Damien. If Damien is controlled by the demon Nezha, that would explain how he could maybe how they could orchestrate and come up with a comic book reason for that fight uh, leading to that entire new series. And since Mark Wade is writing it, I, I think that that's the only explanation that one, one can, I can think of. Um, but uh, we shall no, see. I feel, like, I feel like Wade's going to go his own way. He's not necessarily going to pull in 
other things that other writers have done. Although he had, he did obviously pull in NASA into his run on, on world's finest. So I don't know. It's all yet to be determined. I guess we'll have to see. Um, I actually didn't really care for any of the covers except the main one on this issue. And the reason I like it is because, Hey, here's a cover that actually ties into what's happening in the book. (laughs) Death to the family with a knife there uh, as Batman, Talia and, um, and Damien are all posing for this family portrait. Uh, and yeah, we saw them. We saw Talia and, and Bruce almost come to blows and then Damien say, hey, let's all go our separate ways. So uh, interesting enough that, that it tied in. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Task Force Z number nine from Matthew Rosenberg as the writer. Eddie Barrows does pencils, Eber Ferrer on inks, Adriana Lucas on colors, Rob Lee on letters. I sound like a broken record here, but when it comes to this art team of Barrows, Ferrer, Lucas, they work so well together so well. And it's like, it doesn't mean it's always going to be the same sort of uh, tone of art. Right. Cause if you look at this, the same art team did the freedom fighters miniseries a couple of years ago or maxi series, I guess you'd say Robert Venditti wrote it 12 issues. That was such uh, more of a bright sort of story still had its angst, right. This whole idea of uh, earth X and Nazis having won world war two, but very much brighter and more of a um, traditional superhero story, as opposed to this one where you got all these, for lack of a better term, zombie characters walking around, coming back from the dead with Lazarus resin and whatnot. So very much a darker story with Two-Face trying to, you know, take a hero turn, if you will. So I appreciate that the tone and the color work that Adriana Lucas is giving us is a, is a bit darker. Um, yeah, this is one that yeah covers didn't really work for me. I thought they were just I don't know they just didn't work for me. But in terms of the story itself, I really like where it's going. Jason Todd feels like he's really getting over his head here, trying to keep these villains on uh, on task and and to stop the Lazarus resin from being used and manipulated. Um, and, and yeah, he's just he, he's losing control. This is a more interesting Mr. Bloom who doesn't seem quite so crazy. Uh, and, and you can actually understand his machinations. Um, so I appreciate that as well. So th- there's a lot to like here um, in this story. And I do feel like uh, this story has been going on a lot longer than it actually has. Like when, when I read the story, I, Rosenberg has done a, such a great job of really given us a big chunk of story in every issue where when I was like, Oh man, it it feels like this has been going on a lot longer than it has. And sometimes when you say that it's because a series has dragged on, right? You're like, Oh my God, can they get to the point already? That's not really the case here. Uh, Instead it's been the um, it's gone the other way where I can't believe we're we're only on issue nine because it feels like we've gotten such a big story and Rosenberg has established this fantastic backstory and we get a, we get a young Derek powers and, you know, we've got Derek powers in the, the Sean Gordon Murphy verse right now. And we got uh, Derek powers in, in the future state Gotham. And so he really is building on uh, a lot of the other things that we've seen recently. And, you know, could this be whatever Mr. Bloom's going to do to Derek powers? There's a inclination that he turned him into a, a version of Bane at the end what does that do to the kid? So th- there's just a lot of big ideas here. You know, we talked about um, Philip Kenny Johnson being a great world builder in terms of establishing new stuff. Um, 
<clears throat> excuse me, Matthew Rosenberg is building this fantastic story using the building blocks of the main DC canon universe. Um, so he, he's doing some fantastic world building, or I would say almost story building by picking up pieces that are already there, uh, which is, you know, more challenging, which it takes more talent. I couldn't say, I think they're different muscles. Um, but this has just been such a fun series. And uh, I kind of feel like uh, not enough people are talking about how fantastic this, this book is, whether it's um, this different, but very real and very believable take on Two-Face to the characterization for, uh, for Black Masks that we get here that feels very, um, very on character to Jason Todd himself, who this is a Jason Todd book, make no mistake. And I, I love the voice that Matthew Rosenberg gives Jason Todd, that he's constantly struggling to make the right choices, not because he you know, wants to, to do the wrong thing, but just because he, he, in the back of his mind, there's this self-doubt that is such an inherent part of who Jason Todd is. He always, you know, doubts himself. And in a way, that's what this series is all about. You know, he's had confrontations with Bruce a couple times in the first nine issues where he's telling Bruce, just trust me, just trust me. I know what I'm doing. Uh, but it's almost like he's trying to convince himself as much as he's trying to convince Bruce. So uh, I absolutely love this story. Um, and it's not just because the art team is, is fantastic. I really think it's something special. And uh, I, I think it's a hidden gem that DC's putting out right now. Because, again, I just don't hear enough people talking about it. Everybody should be talking about this book the way they talk about Nightwing or Superman, Son of Kal-El. Um, I, I think it really is right up there. So what's your thoughts? Uh, I, I – I- I've been enjoying it. This actually, this issue was actually the first issue where it felt a little bogged down to me uh, for the first time. Uh, but having said that, I it did answer because one of the questions I had as a plot point is how on earth does how do they get more Lazarus resin? Because they don't have, they ran out of Lazarus resin. They don't have enough to to basically revive all the members of their team, and a lot of the members of Task Force Z are pretty important characters of the DC universe. You know, they can't die for real. And yet they're going to, cause they don't have that much Lazarus resin. And, uh, and I like the creativity of uh, Matthew Rosenberg here. I like, he sort of introduced the idea that sundowner, uh, the, the, the Lazarus resin that sundowner was using was not actually being used up by her because part of her is the, the, the darker aspect of her soul was kind of already dead. And so it's almost like it wasn't really used. And so, Jason Todd has the idea of sort of removing some of the Lazarus resin in Sundowner itself. Uh, and that's interesting. And uh, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I actually agree with, you, you know, you made a comment about Bloom, Mr. Bloom. Mr. Bloom is actually an interesting character. Mr. Bloom was a hated character in Scott Snyder's run. I mean, there was, I, rem- I remember watching Twitter rants about people get rid of this character, but he's infinitely more interesting now. Uh, he's infinitely more interesting. Uh, he's got, I love the dialogue of Mr. Bloom. He's got sort of like a dry, sort of almost like an aristocratic, you know, holier than now, naive sort of wit that, but yet he's super intelligent and he clearly is a sick bastard. And uh, the way he manipulates, uh, the, you know, and he, he ends up actually uh, helping Dr. Langstrom become human again, you know, you know, uh, making him revert back to human form from being man bat. But 
just there are so many characters here. What uh, you have to have patience when you read this comic because it takes time to read. This is what's good about this comic is that if you're used to comics that you can read in two minutes, you don't want to read uh, Task Force C because there's a lot of dialogue in every page. And it actually, surprisingly enough, doesn't bog it down because it's good dialogue. This isn't like a Bendis page where it's, hey, hey, you, ho, oh, what, what, who, why? No, this is actual dialogue that moves the narrative. And there's a combination of show and tell here. And the combination kind of works. You have to have patience for the narrative. I've been sort of back and forth with it a bit. I've, uh, But I got to say, I'm, I'm really curious here. I love the tease at the end of this issue. It says, guys, seriously, what's up with Bane? And I'm wondering, you know, what is up with Bane? He almost seems of he seems to be floating on the final page. He's like, he almost like he looks like he's not, he's floating. Can he fly now? Why does he have these, these, he seems to have maybe some powers. I don't know what's up, but it's these type of cliffhangers that Matthew Rosenberg does so well. Just a quick comment. My favorite Matthew Rosenberg work that he's done for DC is still that uh, original six chapter series that he did with um, uh, leading to Grifter. the yeah, Grifter. And that was in Batman Urban Legends. That was six chapters long and ha- ended with the Wildcats. And then and, and we still don't have the resolution of the plot lines that were introduced there. That I thought was perfect. Six chapters. He nailed it. And we got the substance of it. We're in nine chapters in here, but he's got a lot more characters that to work with. And to his credit, you know, I'm being a little bit harsh on him. I feel while there's maybe too many characters here, but he's done a, you know, considering how many characters he has to work with, you know, I got to, I got to remind myself that he's got task force Z, he's got task force X. I mean, there's like, I think there was a 1.3 different suicide squads here in this book. And it was all, it was craziness all around. Meanwhile, Jason Todd is trying to keep off the Batman family as well, who also made an appearance. So, you know, uh, it's probably unfair of me to be uh, critical in that regard because this is, you're getting a lot of bang for your buck here. You're getting a lot of good story. There's substance here. You can enjoy it. You don't need to read any other title. This is all, the, you know, just pick up these nine issues and you can absolutely be entertained. And I'm, I'm really curious as to, to, I'm really curious as to how the hell they're going to get out of this mess. And I'm asking all the right questions. And maybe part of my frustration is that I'm enjoying it so much. I can't, I, I, I keep waiting for this thing to end and uh, uh, in a good way, but I'm just kind of impatient because I'm on, because I, I want to know how they get out of this. And so we're getting hints of it now. But in any event, uh, it, this is one of the, my, my DC titles that I am enjoying. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, we don't necessarily get great characterization f- work from Rosenberg on, on everybody. Um, but they're zombies. So why would you? Like Bane, yeah. we haven't hardly gotten any characterization for. But he's, <laughs> yeah. I mean, he dies every other issue and is like this mindless <laughs> this mindless brute. So why would you? So uh, I I, I do sort of wish that it wasn't necessarily that way because I love the characterization and and changes that Rosenberg has made for you know Jason Todd. They're subtle. The characterization changes for Mister Bloom are more overt, but they're really working. So love to see his take on Bane. Love to see his take on Man Bat. You know. So uh, I, yeah, more Matthew Rosenberg DC work in the future, please. And uh, we should be getting more for. I mean, far as I know. Uh, All right, let's move on. We've got uh, Batman Catwoman number 12 from writer Tom King. Clay Man on art, Tameyu More on colors, Clayton Cal on letters. 
I can hear many, 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 many fans tomorrow saying, thank God it's finally over. <laughs> Not necessarily in a good way, uh, <laughs> but this is finally the end of this series, which feels like it's been going on forever. It started in 2020, I believe. And yeah, 20 <laughs> now we went through 2021, yeah. 2022. Yeah. It's been a long time coming. Um, we finally have the, the marriage between Bruce and Selena. So yeah, I know it's been a struggle for you. What'd you think? Uh, well, you know, uh, fans of clay man will definitely get their, you know, fans of clay man and that, uh, that build up to Batman 50, even though it was a non wedding and it was a, a big, I think it was a negative PR hit for DC that we, the wedding that never took place between Batman and Catwoman and Batman number 50. You, you, we finally get it here in Batman issue, uh, Bat, Batman Catwoman number 12. Uh, this is a black label series. I guess, I guess the, I guess readers can decide for themselves the extent to which they choose to believe this is within the continuity of the DC universe. Uh, I don't believe it is, but uh, I'm, I'm not going to argue with anybody. Uh, I mean, if you're if you're if you've been with Tom King for the ride and you have a love for Batman uh, Catwoman uh, pairing, then you'll you'll probably get something out of this. I I uh, I, I personally I was I admit to being a little bit lost with with how this ended. I there was a. Once again, this is another issue that begins with sort of like a Christmas song playing in the background. The central conceit, the, the, the story structure layout is at the beginning of each issue of Batman Catwoman, it shows this house and in the window of this mansion is a, is a, is a Christmas song, whether it's Silent Night, God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Jingle Bells, Oh Holy Night, I Saw Three Ships, etc., etc., or Little Town of Bethlehem. And each one of the Christmas songs represents a chapter in this 12-part narrative of Batman Catwoman, which ultimately involves uh, revolves around the central conceit of Catwoman killing the Joker, an older Catwoman killing the Joker, uh, seemingly in revenge for what the Joker did to Andrea Beaumont, who is Phantasm of that famous Batman animated cartoon mask of the phantasm. So this issue started off with sort of like the really teasing the reader saying, Hey man, not only are we getting the Batman Catwoman, this is Tom King's had he been, had he not been released off of Batman at issue 85 or whatever, had he continued, this is the story we would have gotten. This is the completion of Tom King's vision. And so it really started with a lot of uh, hype. Unfortunately for me, it's sort of, I, I didn't, it, the, the narrative got very wonky with me. I didn't quite understand Selena's treatment of the Joker. She she seemed to drink with him. She seemed to even almost at times, maybe it was just the art, but uh, Clayman is so great with his art. I got the impression with Selena attracted to Joker at one point. She was drinking with him, multiple issues on, around a Christmas tree. And then she, knowing that she was going to kill the Joker when she was older. And then... Uh, it was just really, really odd. And this issue has an older Catwoman confronting her. She has an argument with her daughter, Helena. I never understood it. I don't understand Helena. Helena breaks the law by not turning her mother in to Commissioner Dick Grayson. Helena broke the law by attacking uh, Dick Grayson last issue, uh, letting her mother escape. This issue, it's revealed that Selena, an older Selena, breaks into police headquarters. We're told this. We're not shown it. 
She and she destroys all the evidence that they had against her, linking her to killing the Joker. So this is all wrapped up in a neat little bow. She's got a big argument with her daughter, Helena. She destroys the evidence uh, linking her for killing the Joker. And then the big reveal is that Andrea Beaumont isn't in fact dead. Joker didn't kill Andrea Beaumont after all, even though that was the central, one of the central points of the entire story that frankly, in my view, kind of made it interesting, but that never happened. They end up at the end, they're on a, on Selena and Andrea Beaumont are on a beach somewhere and Andrea says oh I didn't care that you I, I didn't you know you convinced me I went into hiding I let you kill the Joker no big deal and that's that that's kind of how it ends and then it we get a flashback to the wedding with an Adam West character the one of the the, the same uh, street bum that, that was going to do the wedding on the rooftop in Batman 50. He comes back to actually dress up like Adam West Batman to, to do the ceremony. And uh, again, it's a wonderful ending. So Batman, Batcat fans, I mean, this is beautiful art. This is, you know, this, it's got your, I guess it's got your happy ending. Happy ending before... You know, 20, 30, 40 years from now, Bat Bruce Wayne will die of Alzheimer's like he did in Batman Annual Number 2, following which an older Selena Kyle will kill the Joker and ultimately end up on a beach sipping wine or sipping a Mai Tai with Andrea Beaumont, the Phantasm. And so that's it sort of wrapped up in one nice, neat little bowl. It's, um, I wish it was a cleaner story. I wish it was a little bit more clear. But having said that, I I actually do have... I mean, I'm a completionist and I actually have the hardcover of Batman issue 50 and it, it collects a number of, of the of the issues, rooftops and a couple of other storylines leading to Batman 50. And as frustrating as I was with that Batman 50 not being an actual wedding, I think that this will be a nice bookend. So hopefully they'll have a hardcover of these 12 issues and I'll probably reread it in hardcover form and it'll be a nice bookend to the hardcover edition I have of the wedding album, uh, which was a hardcover compilation of the of the best uh, Tom King, uh, Batman, Catwoman interactions, because there were some good moments in Tom King's run, uh, frankly, notwithstanding my problems with the larger narrative. There were some good short stories there that, and some good moments between Batman and Catwoman. And there's some good moments in this series as well. Uh, it was a little wonky with the narrative, but overall, you know, I, you know, I, it is what it is. <laughs> Yeah, I I have mixed feelings about it as well. Um, I, I think Tom didn't do himself any favors telling three different timelines, three different stories all at once. And I've talked a lot in the past about how they're not different. You go from one panel to the next and it's a different timeline and you may not re realize it right away. So it can be very frustrating to read for sure. Um, as far as the whole Batman 50 thing, yeah, I mean, Tom never intended for them to get married in Batman 50. He always intended it to, which, you know, that's on DC for promoting it the way they did. Tom didn't have anything to do with that. But he was going to marry them off in issue 100. Then obviously he got removed from the title before then. I, I, again, different multiverse, different reality. There is a world where that happened. And I wonder about the momentum of Tom's run and how that would have paid off. Because here's the biggest problem I actually have with this Batman Catwoman series. It lost any momentum it's a hard enough story based on the three timelines to understand and follow along as it is right now. Now let's have it delayed 
and delayed and delayed and then go every other, you know, monthly uh, release as opposed to being <laughs> uh, released every month. So, yeah, super problematic. Will this read much better in a hardcover, much better as one story uh, in one sitting? Yes, 100%. I'm very much looking forward. I get the sense that I'm going to enjoy it more. And that's not to say that I didn't enjoy it. But again, I've said this before, I'm not really a fan of Bruce and Selena as a couple. I'm Based on what we got from Vita Ayala, I think they did a great job with the recent Batman urban legend story. I'd, I'd rather see Bruce and Zatanna. I think that's more fertile. This thing, the Batman-Selena relationship at this point has become the oldest cliche, done to death. Like I'm, I'm, I'm honestly tired of hearing about it. And I get that Tom feels like they should be together. And based on how long it's taken this to come out and – you know, what he did in his run and now are they together? They're not together. Like I'm, I'm over it. I'm over it. <laughs> it's, it's like the worst soap opera. Who was it back in the day? General hospital, Luke, Luke and Laura, where are they going to get married? Or they're not. No, I'm done with it. <laughs> You're dating yourself. It. We're dating ourselves. Yeah. You're referencing Luke and Laura yeah. from general hospital. <laughs> yeah. I'm just, I'm, I, I can't think of any other, I guess, friends with Ross and Rachel. Are they going to yeah. get together? They're not going to get together. Blah, blah, blah. Like I'm done. I'm done. Get Catwoman. I, like frankly, I think Catwoman at this point needs to they need to pull a joker and take her off the page. Like, can we not have can we have no Catwoman for a while? You know? Uh I really do because I don't feel like she's an important enough character to have her. And I get it, she's had her own book a lot over the last what, twenty years. I just don't think she's a strong enough character to, to really carry. And I'm sure there's Catwoman fans out there that are cussing me out right now, but I just I don't feel like she's a strong enough character to carry her own book. And I'm just, I'm, I'm tired of Catwoman and Bruce and the relationship. I'm over it. <laughs> like I'm ready for something else. So that being said, I do get a sense, like I said, that I will enjoy this and get more out of it when I reread it altogether uh, without having long breaks and forgetting what happened and, and whatnot. Um, but again, I do get, you know, you kind of touched on this. I do get a little sense of, wait, so what was the point of this? Like, why did, why did Andrea Beaumont, like, why did Catwoman help her fake her own death? It was Clay, Clayface that was impersonating Andrea Beaumont and pretended to let the Joker kill her. Like, what, what was it? Like, we never really got an explanation yeah. for why that was. Like, she wanted, I get it. You want revenge because the Joker stole your kid. Like, I, I understand that. But so basically, was it that, again, I'm sure I'll get this on a reread. So, oh, Andrea Beaumont, you took on the Joker and that means the Joker is never going to let you have a moment's peace and hunt you down. So you're going to have to fake your own death and go live on a beach. I, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, again, there's a lot of, there's a lot of good moments here, but is, was that the point of the story? Yeah. It's almost like there were, so that's the middle story, right? Andrea Beaumont going after the Joker phantasm. The, the, the future story seemed to be focused on Selena's relationship with her daughter after Bruce is gone. Mm-hmm. I'm not even sure what the first story focused on other than, like you said, this ambiguous idea of what Selena's relationship with the Joker was before she kind of realized, hey, this guy's batshit crazy. Like, I don't, I'm not, I'm not sure. So I'm going to reread it and then maybe I'll have another opinion. Right now, I would say I, I sort of like it. I wouldn't give it a really high grade, but I, I, it's almost like, Rather than being able to point to any one thing in the story, I can point to the overall feel and tone of the story and say I think it succeeded on that level, despite the fact that I don't even really want Bruce and Selena to be married. <laughs> I, I think it's a it's a like in tone, I think it's a good 
Batman story. Uh, and certainly for fans of the relationship of Bruce and Selena, you, you're getting what you want. You know, like Rocky said, they, they, they tie the knot and Tom King does inject some humor and, you know, Superman and Lois show up and God, if he starts talking about hope again, I'm going <laughs> to, so, but yeah, it, it, it worked. It worked on that level. And of course, like you mentioned, the clay man art is, uh, is fantastic. So, uh, all right. On to the next book. It's Aquaman number five, penultimate issue from writers Chuck Brown and Brandon Thomas, penciled by Sami Basri, inks by Vicente Sifuentes, colors by Adriana Lucas, letters by And World Design. Oh, boy. Uh, the art is solid, <laughs> as it has been throughout, including the colors. Um, the biggest issue I have with this is the pacing, and it just feels really choppy. Like, uh, it's just and, – and these are veteran comic writers – Although we have seen um, this be, I'll say, a weakness of Brandon Thomas's writing style. And he told us as much when uh, he was on the show that he, he always has way more story than will fit in the pages in the real estate that he has. Um, and he, that sort of comes through in this issue. It just the pacing and the flow just feels choppy. It feels like they're trying to shove, you know, 10 pounds of story in a five pound bag. And it, le it just it doesn't flow really, really well. That saying, uh, that being said, the broad strokes of the story do seem to work. And it does seem like we're coming to a conclusion. But at the end of the day, I think when this is all said and done, this is going to be a forgettable story. Nobody's going to be, oh, you remember what happened in Aquaman? Um you could have any number of reasons that they wanted to do this. Uh, let's get a let's get a story with Jackson where he's sort of um, sort of put between his two different father figures, you know, uh, his actual father, Black Mana, and Arthur Curry, and and you know, play with that tension. That's a whole story right there. But then you have the whole um, sleeper agent aspect of it. Then you have the whole scavenger aspect of it. Then you have the whole Black Manta as an antihero aspect of it. It's a little too much story for what they were trying to do. They should have focused on like one thing or another. And I also don't under understand why Jackson's love interest apparently put on 50 pounds overnight. Like he never yeah. seemed like a, a husky guy to me. And then all of a sudden in this issue, you see it on one of the variant covers. He's got a big old belly on him and we see him floating in this tank and he's yeah. like, wasn't he? I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. We first saw him in the Aquaman, the becoming, wasn't he like basically Jackson's own size, like kind of skinny in the, when he was waiting on Jackson and his mom in the diner. Well, I don't know. I, I think that I, Wow, wasn't that a different character? Wasn't that just that was actually a different character, wasn't it? Was it? I, I don't think know. It was that was just a wait a waitress a, a waiter that I wait, that okay. he was. Yeah, I, I think it was actually a different character. I, I'm like okay. you. I, I initially thought that new, but this this Hayway, even his name. How do you say his name? Hayway. Uh, Hayway. 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 Like uh, how, yeah. I, I, I you know sort of like an overweight. Like why? Why would you? Like I, I? I don't know. I'm. I should just be quiet. Because I mean, I'm sure whatever. I, yeah. I, I don't care that they, that he's overweight. Maybe yeah. Jackson likes that. Whatever. Different strokes yeah. for different folks. <laughs> my, my whole thing is, but uh. he wasn't that big before. It's like, yeah. I, uh, I don't know. Maybe he swallowed too much seawater. I. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> I don't, it just. It seemed. It stood out. You know. Obviously, they're. Again, I like. I when I saw him on the cover, I was like, I don't remember him being that big. And then we see him, you know, just wearing trunks in this tank. Uh, so I don't know. Maybe they always meant to have it, have him be bigger, and he wasn't drawn right in the first place. I, I, I don't know. It, it just, it just, 
it stood out to me. It stood out to me. So I, I noticed it. I, I was like, wait, what? He didn't, yeah. Even last issue, he didn't seem that big. But anyway, uh, at the end of the day, probably not going to matter because, like I said, this this whole series is going to end up being forgotten in my mind. It's not one that's going to stand the test of time because there's, there's nothing like overtly consequential that seems to be happening unless uh, they really stick to this idea of Black Manta as an antihero, which I hate. I'm not going to rant about it again, but if there's anybody who would never – uh, you know, give up his vendetta. It's Black Manta. It's at the core of the character. So, anyway, maybe you like this more than I did. Um, no, no, I, I didn't. I, I, I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna focus my. Uh, I hope it comes across as constructive criticism by imbuing at a vain attempt at humor. There's a scene that I actually wondered what the hell was going on. There's a scene where Mira and Jackson hide. I thought they were. I don't know what they were doing. I thought they were. They were. They were. Their hands up were were in the air. It was like were they directing air, like air traffic controllers? Like what exactly were they doing? And I, I figure it was clear that they're they're trying to resurrect. They're or they're trying to create what appears to be a water tower or a broadcast tower, uh, which is they're they're constructing because they got to broadcast some signal. And I, I'm not really sure how they could do that out of water. But I just thought it's little things like this where um, everything about this series feels off and the art feels off too. Cause I was, I've been asking myself, how come I can't get behind this series? What is it that's bugging me? And actually one of the things that actually feels off to me just straight up is the art. And that's what I come down to. It, it, it doesn't feel right for an Aquaman comic. I, this is supposed to be a worldwide threat. At, at one point in here, I'm not even, I can't even remember the villain's name and I don't care. And I, I don't even know what the threat is. And, and like I, and I, and at one point Black Mant is fighting this other guy and they're, they're going through some, what appears to be some kind of portals through various settings. And I don't know what's going on. And I've, I've read it twice. I, 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 this feels very convoluted and I wish, and, and the thing is the, I love the characters here. I love Mira. My, my favorite scene was, was with Mira and Andy when she's actually, when she's, when, when Mira is learning how to, uh, Mira is sitting there having a conversation with, I don't know, uh, I don't know who, and, and, and Mira is just pretending to use it almost like a fly swatter and swap it flying fish. I don't know what the hell she's doing, but it actually, it was actually cute and I actually enjoyed it. That's what I've what I would have liked to have seen more of here. Some those types of moments. <laughs> Isn't that kind of sad that I'm saying that? That <laughs> I'd rather see an infant Andy swap fish flies than uh, than what was actually going on in this narrative. Uh, I I like uh, Tula the the character. I but uh, Jackson Hyde. I, I I don't like his his like his boyfriend. I don't like him. Uh, I think I, he's he's I think he's unattractive. I think he's he's wrong the wrong type of comic book character. I'm just gonna say it. Everyone's thinking it. So why don't I just be undiplomatic and say it? Why are you having a uh, why are you having an overweight character be a come on? This is superheroes. This is a fantasy. This is about you know uh, that's just the way I the way I think. I, I don't think y- y- you shouldn't be doing that. I mean I just th- this is this is th- these are superheroes superhero bodies superhero. I mean how many people are gonna be reading this? I mean, this is what, it's just wrong. It's wrong. Uh, 
but I'm an outlier on that. And, you know, call me whatever, you know, I'm sure people can call me whatever names I, I want. I've got a lot so you're of, not a uh, big fan of... You're not a big fan of Faith from Valiant then, is what you're saying? Uh, well, actually, as a matter of fact, I actually have her... I got her... Uh, I got her... I bought... I bought a faith thing for my daughter, and I actually do have the entire run of faith on the line. I really, why truly okay do. For her to be, why is it okay for her to be overweight, but not Jackson's boyfriend? Uh, well, I, well, no, I, I guess I, the central character. I mean, that that was the. Uh, I was. I thought I'd give it a shot, and I actually enjoyed reading it. But I don't know. I'm just. Uh, it has its place, you know. I just. I don't know. I. There's hypocrisy in comics. I'm not saying I can't be a little bit of a hypocrite myself when it comes to right, these things. And uh, it's just one of those things. I just, you know, it's just, once again, checking off a box as opposed to checking off a, a story point. Like, I, it just, you know, it's it's a minor little irritation. And uh, obviously, it displays my older reader bias and uh, and uh, sensibilities. So shame on me. But I I wish I wish I understood what was going on here. I still really haven't. There's sleeper agents all over the world. And what? Why are they building this broadcast tower? I never did quite figure that out. So they're building the broadcast tower. So last last issue, right, they, they figured out the frequency they needed to turn these sleeper agents off, right? Like they, they went and they found, okay, here's the program that the Atlanteans created as this fail safe. Here's the, the turn off switch. So they're building this broadcast tower, and I grant you, it makes no sense. You can build a broadcast tower and broadcast stuff <laughs> out, of water. out of water. Yeah, that <laughs> makes no sense. But what they're broadcasting is the signal that turns all the sleeper agents off, and that's why after Jackson's up there with his staff broadcasting whatever, and then different members of the task force, I guess we'll say that the Aquaman task force around the world, Garth and everybody else who are out there fighting, all of a sudden says, "Yeah, the sleeper agents were going crazy," and then all of a sudden they just stopped. Because Jackson is broadcasting basically the the turn off signal, so they're no longer brainwashed sleeper agents. But, but so that's why they're that's why they're broadcasting. But why are the sleeper agents like Chuck Brown in the Black Manta series? He 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 made a point of showing about all these slave colonies and the, the Zebelians having a, a race that maybe were on race formed different countries and made up different aspects of countries in the on 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 different continents and 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 I got the impression that the Zebelians were uh were were more than just a race of Atlanteans. They actually had some origins maybe amongst humanity, not just in the sea but on the land as well. What what happened to them? And I thought the the sleeper agents would be more a reflection, would be actually ancient Zebelians that were planted all over the world. And it just it well, it's not, the, it's not the Zebelians that planted these sleeper agents. It's Atlantis. It's Atlantis that planted these sleeper agents. It doesn't have anything to do with Zabel. Atlantis is the one that's, that created these sleeper agents long, long ago. In case the surface world ever turned on Atlantis, they would have a, a way to fight back on land. It doesn't have anything to do with Zebelians. And I, <laughs> I grant you that Chuck Brown, that was an interesting thing that he brought up in Aquaman the Becoming, or actually in Black the Black Manta series, actually, is where he brought it up. But thank God they didn't explore that here because there's no goddamn room for the story they're trying to tell, <laughs> let alone to shoehorn in another damn storyline, Rocky. Come well, on, man. They don't have enough room as it is. Yeah. Well, you know what? Obviously, you know, this This is not my finest hour as a reviewer. I admit I'm just – I'm petty. I'm, I'm, I'm obviously bigoted against overweight people. I've uh, re- reviewed all kinds of my, my screw-ups here as a human being, but but so be it. I just I, – I, I, I come away from this – I'm – this makes every Aquaman less interesting. 
It just straight up yeah. does. Yeah. This was Arthur Curry. I don't, yeah. I don't blame you at all for not having a, a good grasp on this story because it's a chore to, it's a chore to read this. Oh. It's a chore. It's a chore to read it. It really is. Yeah. But anyways. And I didn't yeah, I didn't grasp everything the first time through either. I didn't read it twice, but I did go back and and check out certain moments. There was a lot of, you know, reading and then wait, what's going on again? And I would go back a little bit and read certain parts to make sure I understood. So, yeah. But remember, Jace, remember how awesome it was when we read that issue of Future State Aquaman, Daniel Semper in the art, Brandon Thomas, like an awesome Jackson Hyde who rescues an older Mira. He's awesome. He's kick ass. It was yeah, epic okay, moments me, and it was only two short. It was only two issues and it was amazing. Yeah. And here and we let me have this. You, let me ask you. We can get, I think we can get very simply to why that worked. What was what was the storyline that was being told there? How many storylines? What was the the story? Well, it was very simplistic. It was uh, it was just an older Mira who was they were lost. She was lost in another part of the in the ocean sphere or whatever they called it. And not, not Mira, but and yeah, Andy Kirk. Andy, so sorry. They get, yeah. So yeah. they get they get kidnapped. They're lost. Yeah. They're separated. Yeah. Kurt and Andy Curry goes and rescues Jackson. Yeah. Simple. Right. One storyline, simple, straightforward, two issues, gorgeous art, gorgeous color work, you know, some great character moments. Very simple. Jackson is training her. They get taken. They go through this, you know, oceanic multiverse, separated. She rescues him. Very clean, simple. That's the problem with this story. There's there's too much. It's 10 pounds of story in a five pound bag. There's not enough room for it. So all of it, all of it suffers. Like every bit of the story is weaker because none of it has a chance to breathe. Like just, yeah. just focus on, just focus on scavenger. Yeah. Or just focus on, on Aquaman having to team up with Black Manta and the push and pull that Jackson feels, you know, between that. But like take out the scavenger stuff and, you know, take out the idea of super sleeper agents and make it a, you know, more simple monster Atlantean monster escaping, attacking land, you know, something simple. Or even take out Black Manta. I mean, what, why is Black, we don't even need Black Manta here because we we don't need him. Uh, I mean, you don't, I mean, there's too many characters here that there isn't a single one that I care about as I'm reading it. I don't care about any character here other than, I mean, I mean, I, other than young Andy, that was, that was hands down for me the best page and the best scene. And Andy is just swapping fish flies or whatever the hell she was doing there. I, but it was a moment. I actually understood what was going on. hundred percent. hundred percent. All right. Well, let's move on again. No, nothing personal against Chuck or, uh, you know, Eisner winner, Chuck Brown or Brandon Thomas, whose work we love. I think this was just too much story, just, you know, too many ideas and, and not enough space for it. So, you know, it needed to be like 43, 40 page or, or five, five or six 40 page issues instead of, you know, five or six 20 page issues. So, but hey, there's still one more issue to go. Maybe they'll tie it all up in a way that where we think, you know what, maybe it was a little bit too much story, but in the end it was worth it. We'll see. Yeah. Uh, so last book we're going to talk about in detail is Detective Comics number 1061. Riddle me this finale, third time's the charm from writers Mariko Tamaki and Nadia Shamas. Ivana Harris is the artist, Danny Mickey on inks, Brad Anderson on colors, Ariana Mare does the letters. Then we have the, the finale of the Gotham Girl Interrupted Story from writer Cena Grace, David Lapham on art, Trish Mulvihill on colors, 
and Rob Lee on letters. Um, I really, when I read this, all I could think is I really want to go back and read all of the, I felt a little lost and that's on me. I really wanted to go back and, and read the, you know, the, the first three parts of this story to make sure I understood exactly what was going on. Um, to the credit of uh, Mariko Tamaki and Nadia Shamas, they do sort of give a recap at the end where I was kind of like, oh yeah, I, I sort of remember that. Um, the art by Ivan Ruiz is fantastic. I mean, he, he to me, um, as much as Jim Lee is, is the DC house style. So uh, I, I absolutely love his art. It's fantastic. Uh, I've talked before about how I don't really like this version of the a Riddler with the handlebar mustache and the goatee. Yeah. doesn't really work for me, but whatever. I, I, he I does art the, with Nadia Shamas and uh, Dan, and I think uh, Darnie Mike does the inks. So Dan, does, Danny uh, Mickey is the, Danny Nadia Shamas is the co-writer. So Yvonne Reese right. does pencils okay. and then um, Danny Mickey on inks. Nadia Shamas is, is the co-writer. So, right. yeah, I, I I don't know. <laughs> you know, as much as I like Scott Snyder's work, what he did with the Joker, I, I was never a big – or not the Joker, uh, the Riddler, I've never been a big a big fan of. I, I like that he leveled him up, but I don't know. I, I feel like he took something away from the character in, in a lot of ways. Um, so I, I, And I don't feel like anybody's really gotten a handle on the Riddler ever since. So, uh, But that's just my take. But we do get a lot of Talia – here we find out that she is the one that's been working with the Riddler, which it's never really explained why uh, she cares about what's going on with uh, with Deb Donovan and and uh, Deb's daughter. Other than she apparently she she gives them up so she can get information from the Riddler. It, it didn't really feel I don't know. It didn't really work for me. But that being said, we have gotten a lot of Talia, like I said, and I, I do appreciate that because I've never actually read that much Talia before. Uh, and so I've been kind of indifferent um, about the character and I'm finding her to be uh, pretty interesting. So I, I like that aspect of the story. Um, other than that, yeah, I, this this is one that I feel like I'm going to need to go back and, and reread. Um, the, the only thing that bothered me, and it's a little nitpick, uh, and maybe it's because, you know, I was, um, you know, my degrees in psychology and I was going to maybe at one point become a, a, a psychologist. <laughs> Dr. Chase Meridian brings in all these people and they, these are the same people that committed these crimes. And we find out that they actually did commit crimes and kill people um, and they were carrying around this guilt. And she brings them together without their knowledge to <laughs> confess all their crimes. Yeah. And one of them even says, you know, you you can't do this. This is, you know, you're breaking patient uh, confidentiality. And she's like, Oh, but this is all, this is what you guys all need. Like, no, no, no. Only in a comic would this happen. Right. She's like, each of you has a committed crime. No one knows about, but you You're like, what is this? You, you can't, you, this is a breach of confidentiality. She's like, Oh, this is what you all need. Like, no, you, you can't do that. You cannot. So that, that for me was like a big, uh, and again, I know it's a comic. I know it's fiction or whatever, but, like every, I think every one of the, if something like that were to happen in real life, every one of those people gets up and walks out. Like they don't, yeah, I, that part just didn't work for me either. Um, but again, Mariko Tamaki, she's the one that brought Chase Meridian into DC Universe proper and seems like she's, uh, I'd be curious to see. I don't think she will show up in Detective Comics uh, because of the type of story Rom V's telling. Seems very supernatural. Curious to see if uh, Chip Zdarsky will use her. And, he, and obviously we're going to get more Talia and we'll talk about that when we talk about the backup because um, we got 
the Batman versus Robin coming up. But yeah, will we see more Chase Meridian? She certainly has become a, a very prevalent or very present supporting character recently. So anyway, um, yeah, not, I think I like this. I certainly love the art, but I think I need to go back and reread it. Um, feel like I get a better handle on it. So what are your thoughts on it? Uh, well, I reread this more than once and I straight up thought this was, uh, not good. <laughs> I was going to say another word, but I'll just say it's not good. Convoluted, uh, I, right? It felt convoluted. It, it felt, well, it felt, it, it felt, I'll be more impolite about it. It felt ridiculous. First of all, I absolutely echo your sentiments about these, about the psychologist, you know, Dr. Chase Meridian, uh, breaching solicitor client confidentiality by putting them all in a group setting and compelling them to reveal the fact that they committed a crime and then reveal what that is under the guise of therapy. Uh, no, uh, I, I'm sorry. Just no, a thousand times. No. Plus what I found particularly baffling is Carolyn Donovan, the, the daughter of Debbie, Deborah Donovan. I mean, Deborah Donovan ends this story being a um, an alcoholic, a reporter now who's going to become an alcoholic. She's going to be the reporting journalist equivalent of Harley Bullock of uh, Gotham City reporters, uh, because and she's you know it ends this basically series. You know this ends with her sort of you know drinking out of the bottle, all depressed because of what's happened to her daughter Carolyn Donovan, who was this basically this this judge who basically when she was a DA she. She made a couple of, uh, she, she let her, she threw a couple cases when she was a DA. And what, for the life of me, I don't understand. Carolyn Donovan, for whatever reason, the explanation that Carolyn Donovan gives for, I mean, we are never told why all the characters in this series so far, why did these characters feel compelled to kill the people they did? They, they weren't, in fact, forced who was forcing them to kill? Who was forcing them to kill anybody? There, there was no reason for... Why were they forced to kill anybody? Who was forced... The Riddler wasn't forcing them to kill anybody. What, what were they worried about being revealed? I, I, the Riddler was some glorified talk show host. I don't get it. Why does Carolyn Donovan... Like, I, I, I feel like I missed part of the major story element here. Why is Carolyn Donovan... She's so guilt-ridden that she actually ends up deciding to... Uh, basically kill herself or she ends up at the end of last issue, Carolyn Donovan ends up shooting. Uh, she ends up shooting. Uh, I don't know. She, she wants, she, she wants to shoot them so that because she feels like she, she murdered somebody, even though she really didn't because she felt so bad. So now that she, now that she's actually killed somebody, she explained now she will, she can finally relax because she's actually done the crime she always felt she did anyway. It was the oddest explanation from a villain. I don't know what the hell Marika Tamaki was going with this storyline. I'm baffled by this. Does Carolyn Donovan, does she have a mental illness? She doesn't seem to have a mental illness. Is Carolyn Donovan, so what's wrong with her? I mean, she's she's not rational. She's not thinking properly. What, her motivations don't make any sense. She feels guilty about throwing a couple of cases. So that's not motivation to kill somebody. And and then not only that, uh, what what makes it really nailed the icing on the cake for me and how bad this story is for me 
Talia Al Gol. First of all, Talia is, I guess she's the new Deathstroke. <laughs> Her and Harley are being ridiculously overused in the DC universe now. Now Talia, out of the blue, uh, uh, decides that she's going to share information with the Riddler of all people. And her motivation appears to be, and this is the only information we got, and you alluded to it. Uh, the Riddler says to Talia, you got what you wanted, destabilizing the upper crust with Darby Turner. Information, everything to help you sow your seeds and watch your power bloom. So that's all we get. So Talia apparently wanted the Riddler to distract Batman so she could reestablish a power base among the upper elites in Gotham. And she thought she could do that. By destabilizing the upper crust with Darby Turner? Who's Darby Turner? Is that somebody who died? What does that have to do with Carolyn Donovan? None of the people that were killed were up, were members of the upper echelons of Gotham's elite. So that doesn't even make sense to me. Uh, this is just straight up, I think, this is straight up nonsense. And I I think this is, none of this makes sense to me. Uh Talia's got big, bigger fish to fry than having to intermingle with, with the Riddler to worry about some alcoholic journalist's daughter who's a judge who feels guilty for it. This, is, this whole thing just feels like nonsense to me. And uh, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. This story never worked for me. Plus, I thought the Riddler looks ridiculous. This is not how the Riddler looks. Uh, I know he can look this way, but the whole mustache twirling thing to me just looks ridiculous. Uh, it never worked for me, this this whole narrative. And I'll just, the art's fantastic. Ivan Reese, the art, fantastic. Full props on the art. But boy, oh boy, this this was a really bad story. This this doesn't line up for me. But uh, you can uh, you can give me your comments on the backup. Well, <laughs> I mean, Dar Darby Turner, they mentioned her last issue. She's uh, like, some low-level criminal, but her family is like really powerful in Gotham. Uh, uh. <laughs> I, I just, uh, yeah, it feels like they're planting seeds for something else, but they're moving on. And then, you know, uh, Caroline kills somebody at the end of the last issue that I don't know that's ever decided. And then, yeah, like to your point, she says, oh, you know, I finally killed somebody. Now I can sleep at night. But like everybody else in that scene – therapy, they all kind of confess, uh, I accidentally killed somebody when I was a kid, or I helped my dad bilk people out of uh, their retirements with some yeah. you know, funky investment or whatever. We never hear what, what Caroline actually did that made her feel like she was a murderer to where she finally did kill somebody and then, you know, not kill her. So clearly not die because when they search the, her body for the river they don't find it so yeah it's again it's a case i need to go back and reread um maybe it's just a uh kind of a complication of the way mariko and nadia shamas are writing this story because i feel like you know that that um that arkham tower story that we got i think if that story had come out monthly would have been a lot harder to follow it had the advantage of being weekly yeah. so you could remember I had a hard time once it, she shifted or they shifted uh, Detective Comics to monthly to remember um, what exactly was going on. This is a kind of a cerebral story with a lot of, you know, it's a convoluted or maybe I should say complicated plot with a lot of different moving pieces. And I don't know that everything is explained because, again, it feels like some of the stuff has been planted for future things. And that's not so different from what they did, what Mariko Tamaki did in her weekly run, right? Like all that 
psycho pirate stuff that that was yeah. planted and then didn't necessarily pay off with Mayor Nakano's wife. It's like a little bit frustrating. Um, like I, I love the idea of it. Is Mayor Nakano's wife the new psycho pirate? Well, we don't know because remember how that we got that time jump between the next to last and the last issue. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It, yeah, yeah, it's just it, disappointing it's, because the, I really like I love the character of Deborah Donovan. That's Marika Tamaki introduced, I believe, introduced that character. Yeah. I think Deborah Donovan is the most one of the most interesting additions to the Gotham City character base uh, in a long time. But boy, this uh, this this was a really bad setup for her daughter. I mean, uh, and a really bad foundation. I I, I just this was a significant yeah, loss for I, me. I agree. I, and I, I thought it was insightful when you said that, yeah, she's going to be the, you know, the, the, the next Harvey Bullock, you know, the reporter version of Harvey Bullock. Yeah. You know, we, we could have kind of got that from her without giving her this trauma, without putting her through this. You know, I know she's not a real person, uh, you know, so nobody's actually harmed in, in the telling of this story, but it could just be that that's her personality. She's kind of gruff and, you know, abrasive. Yeah. That's just who she is. You don't have to, you know, give her a, a does every you know main supporting character in Batman have to have the horrible trauma? I mean, God, look at Jim Gordon's family with his <laughs> son James. I mean, can't somebody just be you know not necessarily socially well adjusted without putting them through? Oh, their kid is a super villain, or their kid did this, or their kid did that, or their parents, or whatever. You know, she. I mean, in my mind, anybody who lives in Gotham's kind of screwed in the head anyway. Because they're choosing to remain there, you know. Yeah. We've talked about that before as well. So, anyway, uh, I'm going to reread it just like I'm going to reread uh, Batman Catwoman because I I think I might if I reread it all in one sitting, I maybe won't feel so lost and be able to put things together. And I, maybe I'll mention it on the next spotlight how that all worked out. As far as the backup Gotham Girl interrupted, I loved it. I loved it. Uh, I don't know, and I've said this before as legendary as David Lapham is, I think slice of life or crime noir is more what his style of art is suited for. That being said, I just love this character of Gotham girl. I love what they're doing with Claire. Uh, I want a, a Gotham girl series written by Cena grace. Cause here's the thing. She's not your typical wholesome, what you expect type of superhero. She's damaged goods. And, you know, in her own words in here, she's talking about, yeah, everybody wants to quote unquote, quote, fix me. I think they know what's wrong with me. I'm just, I am who I am. And that's a flawed person who there may not be any fixing her, right? With what she's gone through in her life. And she's okay with that. She seems to be willing to accept that. Um, and others aren't. So I like that idea of this person who's sort of broken and knows that, you know, there may not be any fixing her and she's never going to fit into the box that, you know, everybody wants her to fit into. You know, she says, I don't fit into the version of the world anymore, not with what I've been through, you know, and there's this whole idea of rather than, you know, the the people who've done, you know, the most influential things throughout history are the ones, instead of changing to fit the world, they tried to change the world to fit who they are. Now, I'm not saying that Claire is some, you know, almighty hero or super important character that she should take that aspect, but it's a brave way to look at life. And I just, I find her to be really refreshing. And it's not this idea that she's broken in a way that needs to be fixed. She is who she is. She seems to be able to accept that. Um, and she knows that, and it, it's a good point that um, 
that Huntress makes here. She knows that to stay around, to stay alive, to, to continue on living is going to involve some pain because of the trauma she's been through. And Huntress even says, yeah, there may be no, no fix for you. Um, and, you know, Claire says, sometimes I just want, want it to end, right? It kind of um, intimating that she w- wishes she was dead. Uh, and the hunter says, yeah, except you're still here. So there's got to be a reason for that. There's got to be a reason why you're choosing to, to stay around. I mean, um, there's a great moment where when she kind of feels like she's getting out of control and she compares it to taking Xanax, Claire, that is, she flies up so high that there's not enough air for her to breathe. Her, she, her body starts to freeze and she loses consciousness and she falls all the way back to earth. Obviously, it doesn't kill her because of her superpowers, uh, but her line is, yeah, it's it's it works just like Xanax in terms of calming me down, but it's not a cure, right? It doesn't fix the problem. It just puts it away for a little while. So I, I thought this was fantastic. I enjoyed it way more than I thought I would. I love the take that Cena Grace has on Gotham Girl. Now, Tom King's the one that created Gotham Girl, but I feel like Cena Grace has an even better understanding of who she is than Tom King does. I'd be curious what Tom King thinks of this story if he's read it. So I thought it was fantastic. Uh, again, I'd love more Gotham Girl from Cena Grace. And then, of course, we got a last panel of Talia. She apparently had something to do with the whole uh, machinations that were going on and manipulation where, um, again, Dr. Chase Meridian, <laughs> maybe being overused, uh, is who Gotham Girl thought was behind the death of her friend. Uh, we find out, no, it was it was Talia. After all, so again, a lot of Chase Meridian lately, a lot of Talia, um, and yeah, we get the tease. Uh, follow Talia's adventures in the pages of Batman versus Robin coming soon. What did you think? Uh, I didn't like it as much as you did, uh, although it did have some interesting moments. It definitely confirmed to me that Dr. Chase Meridian has no business pra- practicing psychology or psychiatry <laughs> uh, in Gotham. Good grief or anywhere for that matter. Uh, I mean, as far as, uh, you know, she had terrible idea in the main story. And now here she was uh, previously involved in a program that was uh, that it wasn't Dr. Meridian's uh, fault that uh that Gotham girl's uh, friend was killed, but she was part of the project uh, at one point. But in any event, I'm, I'm nitpicking there. Uh, Gotham girl here is definitely, she's still a fairly, uh, she, I mean, we, we know that Gotham girl is, is clearly in need of therapy. I mean, that's, uh, I mean, Batman knew that it, clearly at the end of, uh, of uh, Tom King's run with Gotham girl. I mean, she was easily manipulated by flashpoint Batman. She was easily manipulated. She was screwed up by the death of her brother. And so she's still coming to terms with herself. So if, if you're going to do a character on a super powered uh, individual in need of therapy, Gotham girls, the one and, and Cena Grace that does, does that here to, to good effects. She definitely gets a revenge. I mean, she's quite graphic. I mean, she literally, my, she flicks her fingers and, and rips the ear off the one doctor that ends up uh, being revealed to be responsible for the death of her friend. I mean, quite. <laughs> so she's she's clearly got probably some unresolved anger issues. And uh, I thought, uh, you know, I thought it interesting enough that, I thought it was interesting that the Huntress sort of befriends uh, Gotham Girl a little bit. And I, th- I actually think in many ways, 
Gotham Girl kind of reminds me like a superpowered Huntress. I think, you know, the Huntress has always been a little, has a, has a darker side and an angry side as well. Uh, Helena Bertinelli has always been somewhat of a problematic character and always went a little bit prone to the dark side, more so than I think a lot of readers might appreciate, or at least in my view. And so I think that maybe Helena and Gotham Girl might have more in common than they, uh, than they think in terms of their, uh, uh, personality profiles but uh maybe that's me just speculating but um i would go with my uh my my, my psychological breakdown over dr chase meridians every any day of the week so <laughs> but having said that i will say that uh talia i actually like the idea of this is actually a smart move by talia i mean you got to wonder why talia hasn't done this before i mean talia is all about a league of assassins training people Having creating all these assassins and when they die, revive them with the Lazarus pit. It makes bloody well sense. Talia finally, it finally occurred to Talia, well, why don't I get my own super powered operative? I mean, of course. And, and what better, what, why not Gotham Girl? And I also want to say in defense of Talia, I think that there's, you know, remember we got Damian Wayne out of Talia. There's a, there's a part of Damian Wayne that we might know and love and maybe hate a little bit. And maybe we could say, well, that's his mother in him. You know, but there's also Damien also got some positive attributes from his mother, Talia, as well, uh, that maybe have helped him become the man that he is or will become, knock on wood. And I think that Talia might have something useful to who's to say that Talia would be a terrible mentor for Gotham Girl. I mean, she, she's still probably more of a villain than not, but I like it. It's interesting. And I really think that Gotham Girl with maybe some influence from Talia, I I really like that. I think that's very interesting. And who's to say it's entirely wrong? And because, I mean, Damien turned out okay, and he was raised by Talia for most of his life. Uh, I would say Damien turned out okay because he got away from Talia. I would 100% <laughs> say it's wrong. Nothing good will come from Talia mentoring uh, Gotham Girl. However, well, however, I will say it's good storytelling uh, possibilities is what oh, I'm yeah, getting at. Yeah, yeah. 100%, yes, hundred yeah. percent interesting story possibility. Yeah. <laughs> Here, here's what I love about it most. I love most about this idea of Talia trying to recruit her own Superman. I absolutely, one hundred percent, love that it's Talia, and and love it for what it's not. And you know what it's not? It's not fucking Amanda Waller. <laughs> <laughs> it's not Amanda Waller. Oh, I need my own Superman. I'm going to recruit Gotham Girl. Blah blah blah. No bombs then, in know, the brains. How, how many times? How many times have we had that story over and over and over? So again, there's another multiverse out there where this isn't. This is Amanda Waller in the last panel, twirling her mustache, going, "I need to recruit Gotham Girl." Mm. Thank God it's not that. So uh, anyway, I'm all for more Cena Grace Gotham Girl. We'll see if it happens. Uh, well, that does it. We talked about all the books uh, that are coming out for uh, monthly releases. There are a couple uh, or weekly releases, I should say, floppies. Uh, there are a couple of collections coming out this week. There's a hundred bullets omnibus. That's a volume two hardcover. Uh, I'll take a quick peek here and tell you which issues it contains. Issues fifty nine through one hundred of that classic Brian Azzarello written story. Uh, drawn by Eduardo Riso. There's also a DC poster portfolio, which is the oversized. I think they're, um, you know, the size of a, like a board when the artists draw, like, uh, uh, I think they're 11 by 14, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so there's a Jenny Frisson 
DC Poster Portfolio with a bunch of her famous covers. The Question by Dennis O'Neill, Omnibus, Volume 1, Hardcover, is also coming out. And that contains the classic 1987 uh, question series, Issues 1 through 27, Annual 1, Green Arrow Annual 1, and Detective Comics Annual 1. Those three annuals cross over to tell one story. And then the last collection is Teen Titans Go! Undead Trade Paperback. So <laughs> that's it for all the uh, DC releases this week. So solid uh, solid week. And yeah, Batman Fortress was my favorite. How about you? Uh, yeah, I'm going to have to go with Batman Fortress too. It was it, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I and yeah, that's a solid number one. And I would probably follow that up with uh, Action Comics in second place. Yeah, I might go with Deathstroke. I uh, really enjoyed that Ed Brisson Deathstroke uh, a lot more than you did. So yeah. anyway, uh, not a bad week. A lot of good books. Batman White Knight. Robin was enjoyable. Swamp Thing, really great. Task Force uh, Z, really great as well. So that's going to do it for this episode. Don't forget, check out our episode tomorrow, audio only on the Comic Source Podcast spoiler-free Wednesday books so you can hear Marvel, Independent, all that kind of stuff. Be sure, if you haven't done so already, to head over to YouTube uh, where you can watch this. If you're just listening to audio only, we do put out uh, a YouTube version on Rocky's channel. It's Comic Boom. You can see our smiling faces and check out the art as we're talking about the books. So just go over to YouTube, do a search for Comic Space Boom! Exclamation point, and, you know, all the usual stuff. Subscribe to the channel, ring the notification bell, like the video, that way you know when new stuff's coming out. Leave some comments below. We'd love to hear what you guys think. Uh, if you check us out on YouTube every week for the DC Spotlight, do me a favor. Head over on your favorite podcast app or device and do a search for the Comic Source and subscribe so you can check out all the other uh, content. As we mentioned, talking about when the episode first started, San Diego Comic-Con coming up soon. So you're going to want to follow, hear all the San Diego Comic-Con talk. I'm um, going to be going to some exclusive parties and whatnot. And I'm not, I don't say that to brag, but, you know, next best thing to being there is hearing, you know, about somebody else's experiences. So definitely go over there and check it out. We appreciate the support. So anything else to add, Rocky? You got anything else? Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, well, more about you. Uh, you did an interview with the Rogue Sun creator. What's his name? Oh, yeah. Ryan Parrott. Ryan Parrott. Uh, yeah. yeah. I just want to say it was a really good interview. And I actually... Uh, I've actually had those uh, comics and I actually read them after the interview and I caught up, but it, it, Rogue Sun is an excellent series. And so I, I wouldn't have uh, done that had I not listened to your interview. It was quite good. So I encourage people to check, check that out. Yeah, I appreciate that. And last Friday, uh, another massive verse interview uh, with a first time comic writer, somebody who's been tangentially involved in comics for a long, long time. Uh, Melissa Flores is her name. She has a, a series coming out called The Dead Lucky and it ties into Rogue Sun and Radiant Black radiant red it's in that same universe uh and it's coming out soon so i just had that interview drop last friday that was a lot of fun yeah. to talk about that and uh got to read an advanced copy and really really uh fantastic story so i encourage you to go check that out as well yeah certainly so that's going to do it for this episode everybody we appreciate your support and for hanging out as always and we will talk to you next time see you later you can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. 
If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.